When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, I, I pay pretty close attention to the news, even when I make an effort to not pay attention to the news because it's depressing or for whatever reason, just because I need a little bit of a break. I still end up paying pretty close attention to the news because my email is basically a giant flow of of news services that I subscribe to. Every email that I get is a compendium, almost every email. A comp- Some of it's just complaints about how terrible I am. But uh, a lot of it is compendiums of news articles of subjects that I'm interested in. So I pay pretty close attention to the news. And I got to tell you, I was very surprised. Now, keep in mind, I was away out of the continental United States for a couple of days. So maybe you can correct me or Matt Blaze can correct me if this received broader coverage than I think it did. But even on vacation, I paid pretty close attention to the news. And I saw very little coverage of what happened in New York on Friday. Have you heard about this? On Friday, and I would not be surprised if Curtis Lee would mention this because he's an animal rights guy. But on Friday, lawmakers here in New York passed legislation and it's now awaiting the governor's signature, and then it will become law, known as the Puppy Mill Pipeline Bill, which aims to, quote, stop the flow of cruelly bred puppies into New York. So the state legislature passed this bill on Friday that, when the governor signs it, will ban pet stores in this state from selling dogs, cats, and rabbits. So the puppy mill pipeline bill, according to the press release from the ASPCA, once it's signed by Governor Hochul, will it aims to stop the flow of cruelly bred puppies into New York. So once signed into law, the puppy mill pipeline bill will finally end the sale of cruelly bred puppy mill dogs in pet shops across New York State, which has one of the country's highest concentration of pet sco- pet stores that sell puppies. That's according to the president of the ASPCA. Shutting down the puppy mill pipeline will help will help stop retail sellers and commercial breeders from engaging in and profiting from unconscionable cruelty. Now, I know a lot of people, mainly folks in the pet store industry and their lobbyists, they were opposed to this, but 
and I know the idea in some respects of a pet store is very American and wholesome and 1950s and 1960s. You remember the old song, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? But I have to tell you that I'm sure there's another side to this argument. In fact, I've heard from people on the other side of this. I tend to think this is a good thing, and I tend to think that the governor should sign this. Um, I'm not sure what that would mean for the future of pet stores in this state. And I've seen a lot of the news coverage, and there has been, well, I don't think there's been nearly enough for as big a change as this is going to be in New York State. I don't think there's been nearly enough news coverage on it. I have found a couple of local stories on it. Channel 5 did a story on it. And the pet store owners put out a much more sympathetic view on this to the pet stores. Jessica Selmer, for instance, she takes pride in what she calls the safe sale of live companion animals, which she said account for 80% of sales at the more than 80-year-old pet shop that he has, that she has out on Long Island, Selmer's Petland in Huntington Station. She says this bill is going to put her out of business. Now, my heart goes out to her. She is the third generation owner of this pet store. And she says that she is pro-rescue. And she says that she treats these animals well. She insists that the dogs she sells all come from reputable, regulated breeders with proper paperwork. She said it's not fair to people like her to be forced to source animals from nonprofit adoption organizations. Now, I... I believe this woman. I believe that she does the right thing when it comes to dogs. But if the only difference in her operation is going to be that she has to get the dogs that she's selling from a rescue center, I don't think that's the worst idea in the world. I have seen it makes me sick. Whenever I hear somebody, a family especially, who wants to welcome a dog and teach their children the importance of of taking care of a dog or a rabbit or a cat, but, you know, I empathize most with, with dogs, it makes me sick whenever I hear a family um, bought a dog at a pet store because he was cute, because there are just so many dogs out there that need homes that if they don't find a home and get adopted, are going to be executed. So I'm sympathetic to responsible pet store owners like Miss Selmer. But I have to tell you, is this going to hurt some good people? Probably. I think this is a step in the right direction. Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal sponsored the bill. She said the proposed law, well, now it's it's passed, the past law is just a way in the governor's signature. It's a way to put a dent in what she calls the puppy mill to puppy pet store pipeline. The legislation would encourage the adoption of dogs and cats from rescue shelters instead of buying animals supplied by whom she calls abusive breeders. That's the other thing. These breeders breed these dogs for cuteness. And I'm not even, I can't even relate to you the stories, the horror stories, quite frankly that I have seen 
of dogs being mistreated from some of these puppy mills. And Assemblymember Rosenthal said, I've seen the heartbreak. People who have bought dogs from pet stores for $5,000, and we know they're from puppy mills. They're sick and incurable. Little Shelter Animal Rescue and Adoption Center Executive Director David Seeley said the legislation is long overdue. And I got to tell you, as sympathetic as I am to this third generation pet store owner, I agree with him. I agree with him. I agree with Assemblymember Rosenthal. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. So the governor received this bill on Friday. And the way the law works in New York, she hasn't signed it yet. Her office, because as you know, Governor Hochul's main way of legislating is to stick her finger in the air and see which direction the wind is blowing. Oh, it's it's Monday, I'm conservative. Oh, it's Tuesday, I'm liberal. It's Wednesday, I'm moderate. It's Thursday, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Bills fan. It's Friday, well, I'm a Bills fan, but not that big of a Bills fan. So um, she's reviewing the legislation, and she will have three or four more days to sign this bill into law or veto it. If she doesn't, then my understanding is it uh, it becomes it becomes law uh, no matter what. So officials say that the sale of pets only accounts for about 2% of revenue in pet stores. I guess, what else are they selling? I guess they're selling dog food and cat food and, I don't know, bird food, you know, and uh, fish and things of that nature. But owners, pet store owners who were deemed essential workers during the pandemic, they disagree. This woman, Jen Selmer, who I can't tell you enough how much I understand what she's saying. She said, if it was if it was 2% of my business, I wouldn't waste my heart and soul. So I am a little conflicted on this because this woman, uh, Jen Selmer, Je- excuse me, Jessica Selmer, she is... A dog lover. You could tell. You could tell in the way she's interacting with her dogs. You could tell she is responsible. Unfortunately, though, the prevalence of these pet stores selling dogs that were bred in puppy mills, it leads to this, and I hate to use that same phraseology that Assemblymember Rosenthal came up with, but I think she's accurate. It continues this puppy mill to pet store pipeline, and it's dangerous. 800-848-WABC. One, are you surprised at how little attention this has gotten? Because I have tuned in to a lot of um, media personalities, even those who are very pro-dog and cat, and I've heard very little discussion on this. Two, where do you stand on this? Do you think the governor should sign it or veto it? Because, again, with this governor, you just never know. She will do whatever she thinks gets her one more vote. And three, I guess really those are the only two questions. One, are you surprised it hasn't gotten the uh, amount of coverage that I think it would have under normal circumstances? And two, where do you come down on this? Because even if you're not a New Yorker, as New York goes, so goes the nation. 800-848-WS. ABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Again, this bill banning the retail sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits in New York is meant to stop puppy mills from abusing dogs and cats and abusively breeding dogs and cats. 
And it's also something that a lot of pet stores are concerned about potentially put them out of business. And I've seen a lot of local papers around the state feature their hometown pet store, uh, the Barking Boutique in Tonawanda, uh, Selmer's in Huntington Station, and others. But I'm sympathetic to them, but I'm more sympathetic to all these dogs and cats that end up abused. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Hey, Matt, you were here on uh, Friday. Did Curtis talk about this at all? I know he's Mr. Dog and Cat these days. Uh, I'm not sure if he did or, or not. They might have talked about it. Were you not here on Friday? Or? Uh, I was here, but I was, I, there's, I there's other things going on at the same time well, that I'm he, handling. I know. But, uh, let's be honest. When you hear Curtis, you, your eyes just glaze over. You, Sometimes. You, you kind of stop listening. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. All right, 800-848-WABC. I, I've seen very little coverage of this. In the papers, on the radio, and on television, I had to go and look for this legislation because this is one of the pieces of legislation that I was actually following pretty closely. And I'm curious, what do you think about it? Should the governor sign it? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Chris on Long Island. Hello, Chris. Chris, uh, go ahead. You were potted down there. Give me one more time. Um, I bought a, a Dachshund. From a chain pet store in Queens, New York, about 15 years ago, and immediately after I brought it home, I noticed it had uh, problems retaining its urine. No matter if you walked it or you kept it in a cage, and it became clear that there were many more health problems that this dachshund puppy had, and you know it kind of broke my heart. I lived in an apartment at the time, and. Eventually, I had to uh, give it away to a family that had, um, you know, a large backyard and the dog could, you know, probably better enjoy its life. And I really think that uh, she should sign this because uh, I don't know if you've seen the conditions. I have. I have. It it breaks my heart. Now, Chris, I agree with everything you say, and I'm sorry for that situation that you went through. But um, and I, I think you and I are on the same side of this one. But let me ask you the question. I am reading the story of uh, this woman, Jessica, this third store pet store owner out on Long Island and the uh, Barker's Boutique up in Tonawanda. These are responsible pet store owners, and they say this is going to put them out of business. Maybe the solution is, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here because I agree with you, but maybe the solution is to just crack down on abusive pet stores like the chain pet store that you referenced and puppy mills in general and allow responsible pet stores that are doing the right thing by their animals to continue doing their thing. What's wrong wrong with that? Well... Perhaps maybe the bill could be amended later down the road to maybe grandfather in these reputable um, puppy sellers to say, if you can provide so many years of records that you've been using reputable breeders that weren't bred in such harsh conditions, then maybe they'll still be able to do business because – you know, third generation, you would hate to see something like that go. Right. Now, Chris, you're clearly way too, way too reasonable to ever make it to the state legislature. So whatever your current job is, stay there. 800-848-WABC. Rosemary is in Westchester. Hello. Hi. Hallelujah, Frank. Um, It certainly took long enough. She should sign it. And I read in the past that um, the big chains that um, show adopted, um, adoptive, uh, cats, dogs, rabbits, people 
families go there, they fall in love with a certain animal, and then they buy the leashes, the, um, the snacks, everything that goes with it, and that's how they make their money. So uh, it sounds like you agree with Chris and with me. Governor Hochul should sign this bill. Oh, yeah. like I said before, God, it took so long, mm. so long. It's a shame. Yeah, well, I'm with you. And I think... Go ahead. Can I say one more thing? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe because of all the other crap that's going on in the whole country and the world, that's why it's um, got little notice because well, it's been pushed aside, I think. that's. I think you might be right about that, Rosemary. And that's why, look, I realize there's a lot of other important things going on in the world. And people will say, how come you're not talking about the January 6th committee? How come you're not talking about Justice Kavanaugh? How come you're not talking about the 9,000 mass shootings that take place every day? Um, and we will talk about those things, right? Um, I, I don't know why we need to live in an era where you hear the same four stories on every single channel all day long. So when I do my uh, show prep, I actually go out of my way to try and find the stories that no one is covering. And that's one of the things that this fits into. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the afterlife next hour, which is not something that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, Sometimes it'll be aliens. And if it is a story that everybody's covering, like Ukraine or something of that nature, I try to come up with a different take than what everybody's doing. That's why I think people listen to this show, because it's different than what everybody else is doing. By the way, I want to thank... Donna in Huntington, uh, she was clearly listening to the Curtis edition of this show on Friday much more closely than Matt was, and who can blame him? Uh, she SMS text messaged me. Curtis did not talk about it. I heard the whole show. Donna, my sympathies. I am sure you're, that entitles you to some sort of a medal or something. 800-848-WABC. Where do you come down on this? Ingmar is in or on Long Island. Hello, Ingmar. Yes. Uh, I work in a place at JFK Airport where there is a lot of pets, puppets coming in from Eastern Europe, and they are way too young uh, to be sent out from their breeders, usually in Romania, uh, Hungary, Poland, uh, used to be Ukraine, which is out of the picture, and from Russia, who definitely out of the picture. These puppies were way too young to be transported. A few of them were dead on arrival. I've seen up to 100 puppies on one flight. And it's a shame what's going on. So it sounds like you also agree the governor should sign this. Well, I should. I would think they should stop these breeders. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, they should stop it. Well, thank you, Ingmar. Uh, I loved your uh, Swedish cinema in the 60s and 70s as well. 800-848-WABC. Um, Christine is in the East Village. Hello, Christine. Hi. How is Melchizedek doing? Well, you... I appreciate you asking. He seems to be doing pretty well. Um, he is, um, yeah, he's doing pretty well. Uh, he's in good spirits. No major incidents of late. Our other cat, Bathsheba, and I appreciate you asking, she still seems to be losing weight, and she it, it's she's eating 
And it's not really clear as to why. We, they've given her every test there is. Everything comes back normal, 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 uh, but she's still underweight for some reason. Hmm. That's a strange situation. Yes. But I wanted to voice my opinion on what you're putting out there about uh, puppy mills. Uh, I receive mailings from the ASPCA, from Bidewe, from the Humane Society. Whenever I have a little money, I send it there. I have a splendid cat named Nefertiti. She's an Aussie cat that I was able to adopt from Bidewe a number of years ago. But what I want to talk about is our local uh, pet supply store called Whiskers on East 9th Street in the East Village. It's the navel of the, of the whole neighborhood. Tons of dogs and cats and happy owners go there to buy food, supplies, treats. They supply holistic advice. They have vets coming in to give lectures, blah, blah, blah. And they have a large section of window devoted to cats that they have rescued. Mm. And these cats are they're gorgeous, beautiful cats. And they get snapped up by, by people who wish to adopt them. And the people who wish to adopt them are very carefully screened by the owners of the pet store. They don't of the of the pet supply store. Uh, they won't just give out a pet to anyone. Usually, people they know. They take in pets whose customers maybe who passed away. Well, who I, I think that's Ill. I think that's all wonderful. I, I'm curious, Christine. Have you discussed this legislation with the owners of that pet store? No, but I'm sure that they would support it because they do a great business about the people you spoke about that may face go out of business that have been doing working with honest breeders. They might consider alternating to something like what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, I'd be curious, Christine, if you the next time you're near there, the next time you go in there, I'd be very curious if you could ask them their opinion about this and then either have them contact me or you call me back and let me know because I think that's exactly the kind of behavior that we need to incentivize even more. And unfortunately, I don't think it's common enough. Well, they've made a big success. They're well-known. They have more than one store. They deliver. They uh, yeah. they, what, they gave me a character uh, bonus or a card when I went to adopt Nefertiti. Well, that's wonderful. Me. Um, well, and, yeah, but they're making money there. Well, no, Christine, that's a win-win, right? So I, that's why I'd be even more curious as to their view on this situation. Thank you. I'm going to take a quick break. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your calls on this. I have a few thoughts on a few things. I'm going to try and get through as many of them as possible. Coming up around 2.30, Nancy Dannison is going to be here. Nancy Dannison says that she died in 1994 for about 10 to 15 minutes, visited the afterlife, and came back to her body. She spent the last 28 years telling people about it. 28 years? About whatever. I, I'm not great with math. If you're listening to this show for the math, good luck to you. Um, 3.30, AC report. I'm really excited about this because one of the best articles that I've ever read on what's going on in Atlantic City with respect to the finances of Atlantic City and how the casinos own some politicians in Trenton has been published in partnership with ProPublica and the Press of Atlantic City, and we have 
the journalist that wrote that story joining me at 3.30. 4.30, dollars minute, and then the hardest working man in show business. It used to be James Brown. Now it's Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade joining us at 4.30. We got an action-packed show, and we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Who let the dogs out indeed? This is the other side of midnight. I am Frank Morano. I am um I, I'm a dog lover. Uh, I say so you know what? Not all dogs. Uh, maybe this makes me prejudiced, but, uh, you know, the small dogs that are the size of your 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 hand that have such a high-pitched bark that only other dogs can hear them, I don't like those dogs. I have to be honest. It's just not my thing. I, I don't like how they're always nipping at you. I don't like how they never seem to stop barking. Again, I don't like the pitch of their bark. I don't like that you, you can't really give them a quality pet because you feel like you're going to give them a black and blue. I, I just, And I also don't like how trendy they've become. Those are not my type of dogs. I like a big dog, or at least a medium-sized dog. Uh, for instance, there's a story about this California woman whose, uh, whose dog defended her from a mountain lion. Attack, And that's what's so great about dogs. They're always there for you. They're so loyal. They don't judge you. They don't criticize you. You you do the wrong thing by them, and they still just greet you with as much love and affection as ever. A constant companion. And they're just wonderful, wonderful animals. And I'm looking at this story out of California of this woman who says her dog defended her from a mountain lion. I guarantee you that dog didn't think twice. The dog died. The dog died. And there's a picture of this dog after suffering these injuries from this mountain lion. It makes me want to cry looking at this. So I always try to think of stories like this. And that's why I'm glad that Curtis and uh, Nancy do do this pet hour on Sunday nights. Um because, you know, I am a dog lover, and I'm now an adopted father of three cats as well. And I wonder what the best thing is for the animal. Because whenever you invoke legislation or things like that, you wonder, are there special interests at play here? Um, because we see that. You know, it, it, 
again, I don't want to bring up the war in Ukraine, but the war in Ukraine, for instance, do you think it's an accident that the military defense contractors who were making hundreds of millions of dollars on the war in Afghanistan, as soon as that shuts down, now they found another way to make hundreds of millions of dollars? I don't. Uh, I was in Hawaii and, um, oh, excuse me, Hawaii, uh, as they say it down there. I was in Hawaii, and one of the guides on this hike that we were going on told me about this show called Seaspiracy, which I haven't seen yet, but how a lot of the movement to ban plastic straws comes down to moneyed interests. And I'd like to do a whole show on that in the future, so I don't want to get into it uh, in you know at this point. But I'm always hesitant to jump on the bandwagon with stuff like this. One, because there are unintended consequences. And two, because I feel like, and maybe this is the conspiratorial nature of my doing overnight radios for so long, I always feel like there are moneyed special interests at play that are up to something and that they're looking for a way that they can benefit. So when I see this story of what happened Friday, which, again, I'm amazed that it hasn't gotten broader coverage, but... When I see the story of what happened Friday, which is the state legislature, both houses, voted to prohibit the retail sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits in pet stores, I just wonder, is that the best thing for pets and for animals, or is something else the best thing for them? Because that's the side that I want to be on. You know, it... um, Reminds me, again, I'm butchering the quote here, but um, someone said to Lincoln during the Civil War that, um, well, let's hope that God is our, on our side. And I think Lincoln said something to the effect of, let's hope instead that we are on God's side. Well, you want to reverse the words G and D in that sentence and that's kind of my view on this whole situation. I'm going to continue with your calls in uh, just a second. If you want to comment on this, there are one, two, three open lines. That's 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We'll, um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll go with whoever's been holding the longest. So those of you that have been holding the longest, that's who we'll get to. But the other thing I did want to comment on briefly is... The issue of ranked choice voting. And, I, and again, I, I hear people say, oh, no, ranked choice voting again. If he's not talking about Ukraine and what and being Moscow Morano and so pro Putin, he's doing his propaganda for ranked choice voting. Don't change the channel yet. Interesting thing has occurred. Yesterday. I got two. I'm not I'm not a registered Republican. I cannot vote in the gubernatorial election, the gubernatorial primary election, June 28th for uh, governor. Can't can't vote. I wish I could, but the Republicans have made clear they only want registered Republicans participating. So. I got two negative mailers. On Lee Zeldin, I mean, brutal mailers uh, calling Lee Zeldin Andrew Cuomo's favorite Republican, showing all the negative things that Lee Zeldin has done in Congress and in Albany. And it's paid for by Harry Wilson. Harry Wilson is also unleashing, from what I understand, a torrent of millions of dollars of advertising, criticizing 
Lee Zeldin on television and on radio, potentially. Now, a lot of the polling, uh, including a Zogby poll and a recent poll from a group called Unite New York, show the Republican primary race as being neck and neck between Lee Zeldin and Andrew Giuliani. Now, we'll see what happens after they have their first debate, uh, first televised debate, but there's a very real possibility that the millions of dollars that Harry Wilson is spending, and I know Harry listens to this show, uh, so you know if I'm analyzing the race incorrectly, Harry, please feel free to give me a call. But it's very possible that the millions of dollars in campaign spending that Wilson is spending, criticizing Zeldin, could actually cause Andrew Giuliani to win the primary. Now, if you're a um, supporter of Lee Zeldin, and you think Zeldin is the candidate best equipped to be governor, don't you think that that makes a textbook case for ranked choice voting? Because we're going to see a situation now, I think this is actually pretty likely, where Giuliani, who out of the three main candidates, uh, Wilson, Giuliani, and Zeldin, is the least funded. Giuliani could end up as the nominee because Wilson is peeling off votes from Zeldin. Now, wouldn't the better scenario be you rank your choices? I like Zeldin uh, first, Wilson second, Giuliani third, or, you know, whatever order you want to rank them in. And then this way, if your first choice doesn't win, the guy that ends up winning that primary is at least someone that's preferred by a consensus of Republicans. And it's not a situation that's unique to New Jersey, uh, New York, rather, in New Jersey. Paul Mulshine, uh, kind of a, he's a, I guess he's a libertarian columnist for the Star-Ledger. He's got a column. I'm going to link to this on my Facebook page right now if you want to read it. He's got a column where he believes, and I disagree with his analysis of the Pennsylvania primary, but he believes that the only reason Tom Kane Jr., who he believes is the most liberal of the Republicans that was running for uh, that congressional seat against Tom Malinowski, he believes the only reason Tom Kane Jr. was able to win was because there were five or six conservative Republicans on the ballot. And the six conservative Republicans divided 53% of the conservative vote. Had it just been... um, you know, uh, uh, Tom Kane Jr. and the assemblyman, I believe his name is Eric Person, then he thinks there would have been a different result. Or, as Mulshine says, if they had ranked choice voting, Eric Peterson, not Eric Person, assemblyman Eric Peterson, my apologies to the assemblyman. If they had ranked choice voting, you could have voted for assemblyman Peterson first, and then you could have voted for uh, the conservative, uh, another conservative candidate, Phil Rizzo, second, and it would have been less likely that Tom Kane Jr. would have been able to slip through with a majority of Republican voters opposed to him. So I, I'll, I'll tell you, every day I see another election that, in my view, makes me a bigger believer in ranked choice voting. And 
I just I, I think a lot of the supporters of Lee Zeldin and look, most of the mainstream Republicans in New York state are supporting Lee Zeldin. I think after Lee Zeldin loses this primary because of the torrent of negative ads that Harry Wilson is running against him and Giuliani ends up slipping through with the plurality of the vote, I think you're going to see a lot of mainstream Republicans start to get on board that ranked choice voting train. So that's that. I had to say my piece about ranked choice voting. We've got it out of our, our systems, and now we can move on to our regularly scheduled program. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. All right. I said I'd go to people in the order they were holding the longest. Neil in Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, I don't agree with the pet store. Um, I would imagine. You, you mean the, the ban on dogs? The ban, Get right. It. I, I would imagine that we had a chicken farm that sold diseased chickens to for market that there's got to be some government agency that would step in in a nanosecond to correct that. I don't understand why they don't do the same thing for puppy bills. This puppy bill thing has been going on for years and years and years. And I don't understand the jurisdictions where the puppy bills are not doing their job to uh, to take care of this and to make sure that the, that the animals are healthy. Uh, and I don't think it's right that the the state tells us what we can do. I know you didn't like the idea of buying cute dogs in in, in, a, in a pet store, uh, only get uh, adopted animals. But I mean, it's, it's not for you to say, Frank. I mean, somebody has the right to buy a dog if they want. It's just like somebody has the right to to buy a bottle of booze or or to buy the marijuana. Now, uh, we can't just tell people what what to buy, and not to buy. But the the dog should be regulated, and they should be healthy. I mean, nobody wants to to see a sick dog. Right. So, um, I, I guess your solution is kind of the hypothetical scenario that I laid out to Chris on Long Island, which is don't ban the sale of these dogs. Just better regulate the the problem puppy mills and pet stores. Well, it's not a hypothetical solution. It should be a reality. Right, right. but unfortunately, it, you know, that's not what's being done at the moment because we still hear all these horror stories. Now, that, again, um, Neil, sounds very reasonable. That sounds very reasonable. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Oh, yeah. Hi, Frank. I agree totally with Neil. First of all, any leg- any progressive legislation in New York, you got to look very skeptically at. This is purely virtual virtue signaling, as Neil said. Just like people, there are people that will not adopt children if they can't have it. Not everybody's going to run to a shelter if they can't buy a dog. And limiting the amount of dogs and animals is limiting the amount of love there is, and it's typical of New York to do that. And it's not solving the problem because these breeders, you don't think they're going to ship the dogs to other states? And these dogs are going to have longer journeys, more arduous journeys, and more disease. They're not going to limit their income. Money is the bottom line. So what is this really solving? Nothing. What you have to do is you have to regulate the pet stores. The biggest problem is, and I'm an expert in this because I'm, I'm, I'm like the biggest dog lover you'll ever find, okay? Uh, the, the, big, the problem, and I've complained about many a pet store, the problem is that the, the dogs are very high priced these days, the pedigree dogs, and they grow in the cages. And, and the, the bigger they get, the less desirable. Everybody wants right. to I get puppies. it. No, I, I get it, Larry. I get it. I, I mean, there's a reason that pet stores sell these cute dogs because that's what there's a market for. That's what people want. I get it, Larry. And, you know, I always love when people self-proclaim their expertise. 
I'm an expert in this. I'm an expert in that. Let me be the first to tell you that I am an expert in nothing. I don't know anything about anything. I've got a lot of questions, very few answers. 800-848-9222. You're also welcome to comment on ranked choice voting, which I'm also not an expert on. Bob is in Long Beach. Hello there, Bob. Hi, Frank. Hey, Frank, the whole thing is I agree with you to a degree, but let me explain something to you. Why don't they just have paperwork and have reputable breeders sell dogs from puppy, puppy stores with paperwork? That's all, and outlaw the puppy mills. We don't outlaw matches because they start fires. Out with the puppy mills. That's all. Yeah, I mean that—that's what Neil was saying. That's what Larry was saying. I get it. I, I get it. I guess. I guess what's being done here, Bob? Look, I, I think even these chain pet stores, I don't think they're buying from breeders that they know are doing the wrong thing. I don't think these chain pet stores. Maybe some of them are. I don't know. But I don't think even the pet stores where all this abuse comes from are importing dogs from Ukraine that they know have been abused. I I don't think. I think most people want to do the right thing. I think a lot of pet stores might be in a position where they believe that they're buying from a responsible breeder, and the breeder is lying to them. They say, yeah, we're responsible. We're, We're humane. We do the right thing. We don't abuse these dogs. We don't mistreat these dogs. And they're not. So... I get what everybody's saying, and that's what I would have preferred would have been done years ago. And maybe you're still right. Maybe she should veto the bill and say, along with this veto, I'm issuing an executive order that we're doing a full-scale crackdown on every pet store, on every breeder, and that if you don't behave responsibly, one strike, you're out. You're done. You're shut down. But everybody else that's doing the right thing, keep the pet stores open. That's why... I always look for the other angle. What is the other angle here? Is this, I, I don't know. I don't know. Is someone else pushing this to benefit themselves in some way? I'm not sure. I know because we see so often people's hearts and minds being manipulated by big media and others. And they take advantage of people's good intentions. Big story out today. Let me see if this is on my list of things to talk about for later. Let me see. Uh, No. Okay. So there was a big story out yesterday. You you know, General Allen, General John Allen, he was, you know, a big general, right? You know, very high profile. He led U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. And then when he retired from the military, He led the Brookings Institution in Washington, which is one of the most respected think tanks in the world. And now the FBI has seized the data, the electronic data of General Allen, four-star general, who authorities say made false statements and withheld incriminating documents about his role in an illegal foreign lobbying campaign on behalf of Qatar, a.k.a. Qatar. So... We don't know exactly what happened here. We'll see what happens, and I'll follow this case closely. But what I think happened here is Cutter bought off the Brookings Institution. They wanted to influence American policy, both foreign and domestic, so much that they bought off 
the Brookings Institution by getting General Allen to lobby for them. Now, we don't know the details, and I don't want to jump to conclusions, but that's what I think happened. I think there's always an ulterior motive whenever something happens. And that's why I'm eager to see this show, See Spiracy. I don't know if anyone else has seen it, but it seems like that, you know, the, the, everyone's always thinking that they're doing a great thing whenever they're using a wooden or a paper straw. You ever use one of those paper straws? Hate those paper straws. As soon as you drink your drink, the, the, the straw disintegrates. But you're supposed to feel good about the straw disintegrating and the fact that you're now drinking paper when you're trying to have a glass of water because I'm not putting plastic in the ocean. Shout out to National Ocean Day yesterday. But evidently the people that have been pushing that ban on plastic straws are the same people that are polluting the ocean through commercial fishing. So, again, we're, I said we'd do a, a whole show on it in a future day. The point is, a lot of times there's an ulterior agenda that we don't see and sometimes don't see until it's too late. And I wonder if that's the case here. Because the Neil solution, the Larry solution, the Bob and Long Beach solution, it makes sense. Stop the abuse and let responsible pet stores do the right thing. But maybe we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't know. As uh, as so many of our listeners will tell you, I don't know much. Rick is on Coney Island. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert. Uh, however, I am a, a, an expert. I competed with my Rottweilers in both confirmation and Schutzen competition. And... Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, I think a pet store, if they had problems, wouldn't stay in business that long. And we are dealing with live animals. So sometimes you will have a sick dog, just as people have babies that have issues. You know, uh, the problem is, is that the people fall in love with the dog when they take it home. And, and I think that's where the problem is. And just as if you have a baby that has a problem, you know, what are you going to do? You know, but so- uh, the worst breeders... Okay, our dogs that come out of the uh, Amish country, okay, they they have a very bad reputation. That's where a lot of these dogs are coming from. However, like I said, we're talking about living animals, and generally dogs are good. Uh, however, uh, trying to force people to uh, to rescue dogs, you have to remember these dogs are in shelters for a reason. Uh, once in a while, it's only because possibly the people didn't have time for the dog. But you have dogs that have uh, behavioral problems, separation anxiety, all kinds of issues. And uh, a lot of times that's why they're in a shelter. When you buy a dog in a dog store, a pet store, excuse me, you're getting a dog that's at least eight weeks old. And it's going to adapt to you Mm. as a puppy. You know, you're getting a dog that's six months old, that's had problems, maybe it's been in two, three homes already. Uh, You know, there's no guarantees there either. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm against this ban. Believe me, if there was an unscrupulous uh, uh, pet store, they wouldn't be in business very long. Well, I, I hear and agree with most of what you said. I do think there are some unscrupulous pet stores that do manage to stay in business. Very quickly, though, Rick, um, did, did Totono's Pizza in Coney Island, did they end up reopening? I know they were closed for a while. I, you know what? It's funny you said that because the gate's been down every day I pass it. But the last time I passed it, which was, I want to say, Sunday, Saturday, over the weekend, the gate was halfway up. Oh. 
Oh. I really can't say what's going on with the tone of. Well, keep us posted because I want to go there, and, and I think my wife and I are scheduled to go to Coney Island in a, in a week or two, and uh, that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite oh, spots. No, I'd love I'd love to bump into you. I, I will. I will. I, I got to get the date from her. Uh, she's the keeper mm-hmm. of our family's calendar. I mean, I'm always. I'm always in. I'm always in. I mean, I live in Seagate. Oh, you know? oh, you're one of those. I got I'm you. In and out of, I'm in and out of Coney Island every day. You yeah. Know? Yeah. No. no. Way in and out. Well, Rick, I, I will see you on the boardwalk then. 800-848-WABC. Let us say hello to Karen in Maine, a state which is uh, very, very pleased to treat its prisoners humanely, a state which is very, very proud of having ranked choice voting, and a, stay, a state which I've never been to, but I feel like every summer a different person tells me it's so beautiful up there, you've got to visit, and uh, a state which has pretty good lobster, which I like as well. Karen in Maine, hello. Well, hello, Frank. Thank you for taking my call. You must come to Maine. We'd love to have you. I you will. I will. Yourself. I want to. I want to do a, an expose on uh, on ranked choice voting up there. Yes, we have ranked choice voting. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I have just one thing to say about the dogs. Um, I, I and this is a little bit off off what your what the bill is with the the pet stores, but I believe that the American Kennel Association, the AKC, could do a much better job at who they allow, what breeders they allow mm. to have have the dogs um, registered. I I think that all you have to do with an AKC dog, say you have two. Pomeranians, they get bred, and it, they're not checked for any type of diseases. Or all you have to do to get an AKC dog registered, as far as I know, because I've done a couple, is pay the fee. And I think if they crack down somewhat, people could not buy. There, there wouldn't be enough uh, enough dogs in these stores or to sell. Because the dogs that are coming out of puppy mills are certainly not a good pedigree. Well, well that's well, just my two Well, it makes sense. Well, uh, no, it, it's you. You referred to the American Kennel Association, and then yeah. you said the American, the AKC. Is it the American Kennel Club or Association? Well, that's a good question, and I'm not sure which. Well, which perhaps it is that if, it, if, the dog. if it's the American Kennel Association. They'd be the AKA, but perhaps the American Kennel Association is AKA, also known as the AKC. Wouldn't that be something if the AKA was AKA, AKC? You get it? AKA, AKA, AKC, right? 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Handling legal matters is stressful. So, let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Uno. He's your numero uno. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 77 WABC. And they call. 
So I was listening to the uh, Dominic Carter show last hour. Great show, by the way. And I hear that they ran, they made a promo out of me wondering who led a half-finished or half-begun cup of tea in the studio. Now, we did a whole investigation on this. And ultimately, we found out that the culprit was Dominic Carter himself. Now, I'm not sure whether the more optimistic way of expressing that cup of tea is half finished or half begun, but I'm making an effort to be more optimistic. There was a, just a new study out that shows optimists live much longer, so I'm trying to take an optimistic view of everything. But the other side of it. Wow. Oh. oh, you found the promo. Okay. Give me a quiet heads up, but go ahead, please. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I would love to know who left this one-third remaining cup of tea in the studio. Weeknights from 1 to 5 a.m. after Dominic Carter. All right, so, I mean, thank you. Appreciate that. We found the, we found the culprit in that case. It was Dominic Carter. You know, these, we, we do the hardcore investigative journalism that other shows are afraid to do. So we exposed that, and I think Dominic changed his ways. I haven't seen – have you seen any other teacups in here? I haven't, right? Matt Blaze hasn't. Yet I walk in here today, and on the floor, there's a plastic Dunkin' Donuts container, which, inc- which is quite dirty, I must say. But it doesn't look like there was coffee in it. doesn't look like there was water. It doesn't look like there was tea in it or iced coffee, but there's about – a half an inch of water in this. Now, it's right there on the ground. This is, one, a tripping hazard. Two, this is something that could have been kicked over and spilled water in an area where there's some very sensitive radio equipment. Three, in an era where, you know, we're trying to be a little bit more mindful of germs and things like that, do we do we know whose this is and who's drinking from it and then who's handling it? And why would they I, I just have never understood, you know, these guys I'll tell you, I have about a minute to leave the studio at four fifty eight forty. I used to have be able to go to four fifty nine forty. They cut me back a minute so I could get out of the studio more quickly to make way for Deb Valter. And I grab all sorts of stuff and you don't see anything here when I leave the studio. Why is it so difficult for people to pick up after themselves? Now, I did not see Dominic drinking this, so I don't think this is him. Uh, Matt Blaze, do you have any information as to who whose cup this is? I I don't. I didn't see it in there. I didn't know. I didn't see Dominic drinking it. I didn't see Dominic drinking it either, and I was with Dominic for an hour and a half before his show. Did you see Rita drinking this? I did not. Neither did I. So I'm wondering how long this plastic cup has been here with water and how many people have seen this and chose just to let leave it there. Well, I'll tell you this. I am ending the cycle right now. No longer will this cup 
be a potential germ hazard and tripping hazard and water-destroying radio equipment hazard to everybody that works here. I will end this vicious cycle once and for all and throw out the cup. There you have it. If you ever want to participate in the conversation about this show, if you want to know what music we're playing or comment on the topics we're covering, you can join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, or just search on Facebook, Morano Radio, fans and haters. Still to come, the afterlife, Atlantic City and Brian Kilmeade keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Hey, do you remember Ilya Shapiro? He was on the show just last week. Um, a bright guy, even if you disagree with his legal philosophy. Uh, he, I think, probably considers himself an originalist. I actually just ended up buying his book. I, I've been on a book-buying binge. You know, it, it's funny. Now we're at a point whenever the mail comes, I know the mail is here not because I see the mailman in our ring uh, system, but because I now hear my wife sighing. <sighs> Here's another book you won't read. Here's uh, another mug you won't use. Here are some more supplements you won't take. And it just it's driving her crazy. I mean, if we ever, uh, God forbid, get divorced, she will cite as um, the cause of divorce too many books. Our our house, you you ever see that Twilight Zone episode with Burgess Meredith and the books? You know how in the last scene, I don't want to give too much away for people that haven't seen it, although it's been 60 years. I'm not sure what you're waiting for. that's basically what my office has become. I'm surrounded by books, but my glasses, I don't don't have broken glasses, so I'm still able to read them. I'm just not able to find the time to read them. But um, I ordered Ilya Shapiro's book. It's the only, only point. But anyway, this is a Georgetown law professor who tweeted about Biden's picking a lesser black woman for Supreme Court. He was suspended immediately from his role on at Georgetown, at Georgetown Law. He tweeted this comment that he then apologized for, deleted the tweet. Georgetown Law reinstated his role on June 2nd after an investigation and a months-long suspension. But There was some news on this story yesterday, and Ilya Shapiro happened to be a guest on the Cats at Night show where he broke this news. Yeah, yesterday I resigned as executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution Um, after they reinstated me on Thursday. They had a four-month investigation into a tweet that provoked controversy. Uh, I was accused of being a racist and misogynist and with respect, like for criticizing President Biden's uh, uh, restriction of his candidate pool for Supreme Court justice by race and sex. And away we went. And there was this four days of hell followed by four days of purgatory that I experienced. I was reinstated not because of Georgetown's vaunted free expression policy, but because it turns out someone finally looked at a calendar 
and saw that I had not been an employee when I tweeted. It took them four months to find that out. Uh, but uh, when I got the report from the diversity bureaucrats, it became clear that this was an untenable position. The next time I said anything that offended someone or made them feel, quote, uncomfortable, that would create a hostile educational environment. Oh, oh yeah, and, uh, and I'd be disciplined. So there you go. So he got reinstated to his job basically on a technicality because they found he wasn't an employee at the time that he tweeted this. And then he quit as soon as he got reinstated. So I don't know. I really look, I don't think Georgetown should have put him through what he they put him through. Uh, you, We can have a discussion about what he tweeted. But I think you should get fired for or hired or promoted or reprimanded for the things that you do and say in the classroom or in your your job at, at you know it was not just a in a, a teaching position it was also an administrative position and i don't know i i think um i don't know that i would have quit if i were him i get what he's saying and uh i i get that he know he doesn't think georgetown law values free speech but that's why it's so important to fight the good fight there not for conservatism but for free speech and, you know, Herb London was a very close friend of mine. And I was asked yesterday who the smartest person I ever met was. And the, there are a lot of smart people that I met. And the answer I came up with was Herb London. And Herb London was president of a college, first a division and then a college, at NYU. And he was the lone conservative at NYU. And the adventures that he had fighting for free speech when it was unpopular are incredible. There's a book. I have it. It's a little tiny book. It's really more like a pamphlet, but it's called Diary of a Dean. And I really think that because Herb London was on campus offering a different point of view, not indoctrinating anybody, just offering a different point of view, he really helped the educational experience and the academic experience of the folks that went to NYU. And I really think that Ilya Shapiro would have been in the same position had he tried to remain at Georgetown Law. So look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna question him, but I will tell you, if I'm ever suspended from my job and then reinstated, whatever my job is, whether it's this one or any other one, I'm not quitting. <laughs> I am they're gonna have to drag me out of here <laughs> with with as I'm scratching the furniture to hang on. So I'm sorry that that story has ended the way that it did. I'm not going to question. Uh, I'm not going to question Ilya Shapiro's decision, but eh, it's not the decision I would have made. So I guess I am questioning it. And in other wacky news, you know what really grinds my gears? <laughs> this has got to be the most ridiculous legal claim that I have seen today. I can't even say this with a straight face. I, I can't even believe this really happened. I can't believe that these are headlines in reputable publications because this sounds like the kind of thing that you're not reading in a mainstream news publication. It sounds like the kind of thing you're reading in The Onion. But I'm going to go ahead and read this to you. A Missouri lawsuit adds a new twist to the kind of bodily harm in a car that's covered by insurance. This week, this actually happened. This is not satire. This is not parody. This is not hyperbole. This is not a joke. This is reality. 
reality radio, as real as it gets, this week, a three-judge panel at the state's Court of Appeals in Missouri, Western District, affirmed a $5.2 million settlement. $5.2 million. By a woman who caught a sexually transmitted disease from her former boyfriend in his car. Are you kidding me? Now, the headline on Drudge is as salacious as can be. Uh, If you go to Drudge, they have the headline up there, which I think is really interesting. And I mean, it's clickbait. They knew people would click on it with this with this, uh, you know, headline. The headline on Drudge says woman says she caught STD in car auto insurance to pay out five point two million dollars. So what do you think happened? Right. So you read you see that headline. You think, oh, my goodness, somebody with an STD must have been in the car. And then she sat in the car after that and she caught the STD that way. No, this is what happened. The woman identified in court documents as M.O. Said she contracted HPV, the human papillomavirus, from her boyfriend. She said he knew he had the disease, but didn't tell her. An arbitrator found in May of 2021 that the in-car sex had directly caused or directly contributed to cause the STD transmission. The man was found liable. The woman was awarded... $5.2 million to be paid by GEICO, which insured the man's vehicle. Now, that's got to be the stupidest decision that I've ever heard in, in a lifetime of watching stupid legal decisions. So GEICO says, wait a minute, excuse me, we didn't tell anybody to have sex in cars and give anybody HPV. We didn't, we didn't tell anybody to do that. We shouldn't have to pay. He signed the insurance policy. We covered him for collisions and breaking. We we didn't cover him for giving women his girlfriend an a, a, you know an STD. This is crazy. So Geico files for the award to be overturned, alleging that it had been denied due process and that the arbitration deal was unenforceable. You think so? So court documents show that Geico claimed the man's policy covered only injuries. That came out of the ownership, maintenance, or use of the vehicle. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. That's what car insurance is for. Car insurance is not to pay out claims when you give a woman an STD. And that the woman's injuries rose from an intervening cause. Namely, her failure to prevent transmission of STDs by having unprotected sex. The state appellate panel ruled July 7th that the lower court made no mistake in the case and upheld the decision. The Kansas City Star reported that one of the judges concurred but said Geico was offered no meaningful opportunity to participate in the lawsuit and existing law relegates the insurer to the status of a bystander. A bystander? The bystander has got to pay $5.2 million? You want to know why your insurance rates are so high? It's because Geico is paying out $5.2 million to a woman whose cheating boyfriend gave her HPV. Uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge Angel D. Mitchell 
This case presents a novel and potentially important issues about whether an insurance carrier can be held liable under such policies for the consequences of two adults voluntarily having unprotected sex in the insured in the insured's automobile. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. What if they weren't in his car? What if they were in her car? Would her insurance company have to pay for this? What if what if they were in her house? Would her home insurance have to pay for this? What if they were in his apartment? Would his renter's insurance have to cover this? This has got to be the most insane thing I've ever seen. Geico ought to take out um, full-page ads in the state of Missouri and in every newspaper in the country, the national ones anyway, New York Times, USA, the Wall Street Journal, and say the three-judge panel of the state's Court of Appeals should be cast in the next Three Stooges movie because these guys have got to be the biggest jokers who have been poked in the eye and hit on the head one too many times. This decision is absolutely ludicrous, in my opinion. You want to weigh in? You can. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Speaking of ludicrous, some of you may think it's ludicrous to die, go to the afterlife, and come back. But we're going to meet a woman named Nancy Dannison who did just that, coming up in about four minutes. But first, on the subject of the absurd, I have to tell you about this. A Brazilian man who married nine wives, nine wives, this must be his little tribute to Herman Cain, a Brazilian man who married nine wives together to celebrate free love and protest against monogamy, this is maybe a month ago, has said that one of them has already divorced him. Brazilian model Arthur O. Urso and his first wife, Luana Kazaki, formalized their union with the eight other women at a Catholic church in Sao Paulo. Well, I I guess the Catholic church will do anything for additional members these days. Notably, their marriage is not legally binding as polygamy is illegal in Brazil. Months after the marriage, one of Arthur's wives, I guess it was more than a month ago, Months after the marriage, one of Martha's wives, Agatha, decided to divorce the group. A few months went by, and everything seemed so perfect until the moment when one of my wives called me to talk. In short, we came to the decision to divorce. He said she wanted to have me all to herself. It didn't make sense. We have to share. I was very sad about the separation and even more surprised by her excuse. She said that she was missing a monogamous relationship. A couple things here. One, I've seen that uh, HBO original series, Big Love. And I enjoyed that show. I thought it was quite good. Bill Paxton, God rest his soul. And I think that paints as friendly a picture as you can on a polygamous relationship, right? It's Basically, if you haven't seen it, it's a good show. I recommend it. It's a a fellow that's married to three three women simultaneously. Uh, Most polygamous relationships, they're not really, at least based on what I've heard, the... They're not as consensual as they're depicted on that television program. Maybe some of them are. And I don't know the circumstances for this fella in Brazil. But I have to tell you that as long as we're talking about consenting adults, I really don't have an issue with polygamy. Not that I don't have an issue with it. I don't have a legal issue with it. And 
I know it's against the law here and apparently in Brazil. I actually tend to think that maybe if everybody's genuinely consenting and adults about it, why shouldn't you be able to have four or five wives? Now, the other coin of it, by the way, comment if you see fit, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. The other coin of that, though, is why would you ever want more than one wife? And let's say you want two because, you know, there's chocolate and vanilla. You want a little variety. Variety is the spice of life. Why would you want nine wives? That just sounds like so much work. I mean, I I love my wife, but if the stresses in our relationship were multiplied by nine, blah 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 blah, I would I would go crazy. I mean, maybe if you're the Sultan of Brunei or the King of Saudi Arabia, and you have a limitless supply of money. And, and I don't know, you could hire people to cater to their every whip. But if you're just a normal, regular guy or gal, would you ever want nine spouses? Not me. So I would love to hear your thoughts on all of this. Uh, call quickly, though, because we want to get to Nancy Dennison to talk about uh, the afterlife. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Issue one is this stupefying decision to have Geico pay $5.2 million because a woman's boyfriend gave her HPV. Issue two is this decision by Ilya Shapiro to quit after being reinstated to his job. They call that in academia doing the full Bill Belichick. And three, this this situation in Brazil where a guy actually wants to be married to nine wives. One, do you think it should be legal? And two, I guess now because I'm mixing letter numbers, you know, it's A and B rather than one and two. Do you think it should be legal? A and B, um, would you ever want nine wives? 800-848-WABC. Let's check in over at our busy phones. All right. Well, I appreciate the concern a lot of you have for Avery because, uh, He has demanded this apology from me publicly for my disparaging comments about him as a telephone talent coordinator. Uh, According to Curtis, and Curtis has said this to me privately as well, uh, Avery has been very affected by the remarks that I've made. It's uh, made him um, incontinent, and he's just been just beside himself, losing all sorts of sleep uh, because of the comments that I've made about him. I appreciate the efforts that you're going to to protect him uh, and not have him be overtaxed. I appreciate it, and I suspect Avery does as well. So, so be it. Uh, If you do want to comment quickly, 800-848-WABC, that's uh, 800-848-9222. But uh, there'll be time to comment on all this a little bit later. Still to come, uh, the AC report at 3.30, and um, at 4.30 after the the $1,000 minute, we'll talk to Brian Kilmeade, about a whole bunch of things. I got a a long laundry list of things, including the January 6th uh, commission, which Fox is the only network not carrying it. So I'm going to ask him about that and a bunch of other things. Hey, um, let me quickly go to Joe and Ron Konkama. Joe, got about a minute here. Hello. Hey, Frank. 
Hey, Frank, how are you? Good. Um, about the multiple wives, I'm having problems with just one. I don't need multiple wives. Yeah, <laughs> and how? My goodness. Yeah, well, I, I mean, so you, you, yeah. do you think it should be legal, though? No, 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 no. How come? One's enough for me. No, no, it one's enough for me, too. But let's say you could handle two or three or four or nine. Why shouldn't, and everybody's on board, why shouldn't you be able to have two or three or four or nine? Two, the max, Frank. But uh, nine, come on. You take your commission to a sane asylum. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I, 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 I agree, Joe. I'm just talking about from a legal perspective. Robert in Manhattan, hello. Hi, Frank. Listen, the first thing I want to tell you, what Frank, what, um, what Curtis Leeward doesn't understand why your ratings are better than his and why you're so talented is, when you talked about the cup with the water in it, I said to my, although it was such a silly, mundane subject, you can make just sound interesting. No, thank you. I mean, you... You wrote it. You, 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 the way you read it was like a who done it, and it was actually very funny. And it was something so simple, so mundane, and that no one would say twice about it. But you actually made it sound interesting. Um, regarding the guy with the nine wives, I mean, the priest who performed that ceremony should have been defrocked. I mean, I think the Catholic Church is losing its grip and its control on its underlings working there. You know, that's clearly a violation of church teaching, biblical teaching. And this priest who marries a guy with all nine wives together, come on, why why hasn't he been defrocked and the bishop been disciplined? Well, you know, it's funny. They First of all, Robert, thank you for your nice compliments. I appreciate that very much. You're very kind. Um, they found the priest that performed the ceremony and Pope Francis has actually endorsed him to be the next pope when Pope Francis resigns on August 28th. And no, they're actually he this is one of the 21 cardinals that Pope Francis is appointing in August and they want this guy to be the next pope, believe it or not. Uh, but, you know, it's fine. And I, I'm sorry to have disconnected Robert prematurely, but um, I do want to talk about the afterlife. But um, when I was in maybe third or fourth grade, there were two girls in my class that I liked, Jillian and Pamela, both beautiful girls. I haven't seen, I haven't, I mean, I I keep in touch with both of them, but I haven't seen either of them in in years. And I was so annoyed as a third grader or a fourth grader. Now I never went out with either of them, but um, I was so annoyed that there were laws in place to prohibit me from marrying both of these women, both of these girls. And I could not understand, as a third grader, why in the world would they stop me from marrying both Jillian and Pamela? Doesn't seem right. And then that's one of the things that you come to understand as an adult, that a wife has a lot of responsibility. And that's when I read about these stories of these guys that are leading these secret double lives where they have, uh, you know, I know a gangster. You know, he had two wives basically set up around the corner from one another. There was a, 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 another fella that I knew about. He had one wife and children and a family in one city, and then he would leave to go to another city for work. And he'd have another wife and family there. And all I would think is, my God, the guy never gets a break. It's not like he's going out to party with his girlfriend. He essentially has another set of headaches. 
when he goes on to. I just don't understand why anyone would want to do that. But, but, why should it be illegal? Right? I get there are tax implications, but again, you could charge them both taxes. I've always felt that way. Even as I would never want a second wife, and I don't, you know, morally polygamy is not necessarily my thing. But what's the harm? If everyone's into it, everyone's above board, what's the harm? 800-848-WABC. Sherry in Little Falls. Hello, Sherry. Hi. Hi. Um, First of all, that's against the Catholic Church. I know that. And this is the first pope. If he's endorsing it, he's the first pope, if you think about it, in the history of the church, was not put in the way every other pope was put in. And there's things going uh, going on in Rome that's never gone on before. So that's that. But anyway, on his behalf, he's not going to be able to support all these women, which means they're going to go out. They're all going to get jobs, bring money in. He could live like a king. He, he wouldn't have to work because he has eight women working. They'll probably all reside in the same home. And um, he probably wouldn't even want children because, you know what, they're responsibility. And he wants to be taken care of. Sherry, so yeah, Sherry, thank you for that. Uh, maybe we'll con- revisit this in a minute. We're going to talk about the afterlife with Nancy Dennison straight ahead. W-A-B-C. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 W.A.B.C. The other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I tell you, one of the questions which I think many of us think about almost our whole lives, uh, from the time that we first achieve consciousness to the time when the days grow short and it's clear that the end is near, is what happens when you die? Is there an afterlife? What becomes of your consciousness? What becomes of your soul? Uh, Do you get to meet God? Are you instantly bequeathed with all sorts of knowledge about all sorts of world events and international events and uh, otherworldly events? Well, somebody that might be in a good position to answer that is Nancy Dennison. Nancy Dennison knows a thing or two about this because she's actually seen what happens when you die. She's died before, almost 30 years ago. We'll find out about that in a moment. She's the author of five best-selling books detailing her experiences and the knowledge that she gained while temporarily in the afterlife following her death back in 1994. Nancy Dennison, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm having a great morning so far with you, Frank. <laughs> w- wonderful. Well, hopefully, hopefully uh, nothing too much will change. Now, uh, Nancy, you have a absolutely fascinating story. Uh, just before we talk about what happened in 1994, tell us about what your life was like prior uh, to March 14th, 1994. I know you were a very successful trial lawyer. You had a national reputation. You're working for a big, prestigious law firm. What else was like life for you? Uh, What else was life like for you prior to the incident that we're going to talk about? I only had work life. (laughs) I mean, I was pretty much consumed with... um, practicing law, and I did participate on the boards or as volunteers for a number of national and local nonprofit organizations, you know, charities. Um, But other than that, I was just, I have always dedicated my life to doing what I think helps other people. And so that's what I did. Did, did you have a, a special interest in uh, in the afterlife or uh, the occult or ghosts or anything that we traditionally associate with communicating with the other side? No, I had been to a few psychics, like you know most people, and I I did have a passing interest in it, but not not really. No, so it wasn't you weren't obsessed with the idea of reincarnation or thinking that you're Cleopatra in a previous life or something like that. No, in fact, I didn't even believe in reincarnation because I was reared as a Catholic, and that's not one of the things they teach. Okay, so what happened on March fourteenth, nineteen ninety four? I was in the in the cancer hospital for uh, removal of three lesions in my right breast that were presumed to be cancerous. And because not all cancers form a lump for the surgeon to feel, um, some of them form calcium deposits that show up only on mammograms. I had to have a series of mammograms and have a needle stuck into the three tumors so that the surgeon would know where to cut. And I had an anaphylactic shock reaction to the local anesthetic, and also I had very, very low blood sugar. And so I died and went into the afterlife. And a great surprise to myself. I, I can imagine. Now, you were medically dead? You were considered dead? Yes. It um, took, well, after I got back into my body and I did return on my own, uh, the, the doctor and the radiology technician were in the room and they I told them that I had passed out, and they had a nurse come in and take my blood pressure, and it was 60 over palpable, which means it had been lower than that before I got back into the body. And it took a half an hour for my blood pressure to come up from there. And then a few years later, an MRI showed extensive brain damage from lack of oxygen. Not gray matter damage. It was white matter damage. <laughs> so I can still think, okay. Uh, no, I I, uh, I can see that uh, that's clearly the case. How long were you dead for? We're guessing 10 to 15 minutes. Well, do, do the doctors know based on your brain activity and everything else? No, because they were out of the room. I see. So you were not necessarily under medical supervision during this 10 to 15 minute period. No, I was completely alone until I came back in the body 
after the doctor and Chuck had come back into the room. So what did you see during this 10 to 15 minute time that you were dead? I saw that everything that I had learned about heaven and the afterlife from the Catholic Church was completely wrong. What actually exists, and I've been in the afterlife three times, is something far more glorious. We are not our bodies. We are what we call the soul, and the soul is eternal. It is an integral part of our creator, and we choose to reincarnate as much or as little or none at all. We are completely masters of our own lives, of our own futures, and I saw, I got the answers to all my existential questions. I saw a, like a documentary video of how and why religions evolved the way that they did because I was so angry that, you know, everything I was learning was completely different from what I'd learned in Catholic schools that, you know, I think I was shown this video or this documentary to kind of calm me down. I spent some time actually merging into my five eternal friends one at a time or more than one at a time and living their physical lifetimes through them as them or as me. Never heard of anything like that before in my life. And then I watched creation of the universe from the beginning to the end. I watched Earth's creation and demise. And after all of that, I kind of woke up while in the afterlife to the knowledge that we souls are literally small parts of of God, of the Creator. And we're we have an amnesia about that while we're in the reincarnation phase. But then we can wake up and realize that who we really are. And at the end of that, I kept saying, you know, I kept saying through the documentary and, and through creation of the universe and through waking up as as the creator, somebody's got to tell those people. You know, somebody's got to tell those people down on earth. And the next thing I know, I'm kind of being whirlwind back into Nancy's body while I'm saying, I didn't mean me. I wasn't volunteering for this. So in that first instance, did you consciously make the decision to go back into your body? I I don't remember doing that. I don't know whether it was my decision or whether it was the creator's. And and by the way, people just tuning in, we're talking with Nancy Dannison. If you want to learn more about her story, you can check out her website, nancydannison.com. It is Nancy with an I, D-A-N-I-S-O-N. She's the author of five books detailing the experiences that she had and the knowledge that she gained while temporarily in the afterlife. And just so folks are understand, understanding exactly what you're saying, that documentary that you say that you that you viewed, that you watched, you watched that in the afterlife. It wasn't an actual yes. documentary that you watched on Earth. No, no. It was. It played in my mind, um, Com- complete with, like, somebody talking in my ear, explaining things to me, and then there were also, like, um, TV chirons, you know, running along, giving me time periods. Does God really sound like uh, Morgan Freeman? Can you tell us that? Oh, I wish. Uh, no. Um, what I call God, I call—I mean, I call Source instead of God. It has no physical characteristics whatsoever. It's pure energy. And what were the occasions that you visited the afterlife after that initial experience on, in March of 1994? 
I died a few months later, um, and I I don't really know why. Um, and I went back into the afterlife to meet with a group of light beings who were monitoring the mission I'd been given. And they basically told me, hey, you're not working on your mission. And I went, oh, okay, you know. And then I went back in the body and woke up from death, <laughs> you know, remembering that I was supposed to be working on my mission and not much else. And the second time it was similar. I I died from uh, very low blood sodium and went into the afterlife and met with a different council of light beings, two of which were my earth parents, were, were Nancy's earth parents, uh, and one of which was a guy I knew from the gym, which I was amazed that a human, a live human being could appear in the afterlife, but there they were, and they told me that Nancy was dying, that I could come home with a, without it being held against me that I hadn't completed my mission, but I could also choose to stay with Nancy, and if I did, we would suffer for the rest of her natural life. And I felt so badly that I hadn't completed my mission, and I felt like I owed you know, the people on earth you know, the knowledge that I was carrying. And I also wanted to see what was going to happen, <laughs> so I chose to come back. Now, just so folks are, are clear, the your parents and the person that you knew from the gym – those weren't actually them, right? Those were just how they these beings appeared to you. Well, the my parents had predeceased me, so they were in the afterlife, and they at first appeared as you know just beings of energy, beings of light. But then they took on the faces of my parents for just a second or two. Um, the the human being from the gym. I don't know what the explanation for that is. I've read other um, near-death experiencer accounts where, you know, one or two others have seen live humans in the afterlife. I don't know how that works. I, I think one question that a lot of listeners are going to wonder about in hearing your story is, how do you know that this was the afterlife? We've certainly seen instances of when uh, people are uh, are suffering or close to death or maybe there's diminished oxygen to the brain that they could be experiencing some sort of a delusion. How, how, why and how are you so convinced that this was the afterlife and not a delusion of some sort? Well, I was completely healthy. I was not dying. I was sitting upright in a chair with a wire stuck in my breast, scared out of my mind that I was going to, you know, that they were going to find cancer. Uh, I was sweating and my heart was pounding and I just felt horrible. And then I started slowly getting out of my body and I could feel every second of it. So I was completely conscious, aware, awake every moment of this experience. I have felt every single instance of my body shutting down, getting out of it, going into the afterlife. And as I went through these various stages of afterlife, like in the back of my mind, I was going, oh, yeah, I remember this. And the thing about the afterlife is, and every near-death experiencer who comments on it agrees, is way, 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 way more real than human life. You look back at human life and go, oh, that was like having a dream, or it was like having part of me asleep and having this adventure. So it's, and also things occurred that I couldn't have hallucinated because I didn't even know they existed. I see. 
I see. And what about the the third instance of your visit to the afterlife? What were the circumstances there, and why did you make the decision to return to your temporal body in that instance? Well, that one that was the one where I died from low blood sodium. I, I, ended, I ended up in the hospital for three days. I when I came back into my body, I dialed nine one one, and I went to the hospital. And what did you learn about life on this earth when you were in the afterlife? I learned that human life is driven by two big engines. One is biology, and that is the result of evolution and the scientific principles that source God um, infused into the energy that creates the universe. The other is called manifesting, and manifesting is the power that the deity has to create physical matter, what humans perceive to be as physical matter. We souls live inside the biological entity that is run according to biological principles. We souls have the exact same power to manifest physical matter and physical life because we are part of the creator. And what we unconsciously do is we create life's events and opportunities in accordance with what we truly and deeply believe. So whatever you started believing as an infant in the womb, as a small child going through school, whatever those beliefs are, whether they're right or they're wrong, you will manifest for yourself a human life that matches those beliefs. Now, so you, your first book on this subject was called Backwards, Returning to Our Source for Answers. And then you wrote a second book that was the result of trying to address so many of the questions that you got about your first book and the experience that you had. What were some of the most common questions that people asked you that led to the publication of that second book? Well, one, a lot of them were, you know, the same questions you've been asking me. Uh -huh. um, some people wanted to know whether the body could exist without the soul. They thought the soul was the, the engine or the power source for the body, and it's not. Um, they wanted to know whether, um, you know, the deity is all-knowing and sees everything, and, you know, if it loves you unconditionally, why would it punish you for breaking well, his, you know, most humans think God's a he. Um, and you, you read, you, you indicated that you thought that what you learned in the afterlife was inconsistent with what you had studied and been taught in Catholic school. Specifically, what was different about the afterlife from what you were picturing given your Catholic upbringing? Well, I thought that, well, first of all, I thought that my soul, I did believe in soul, and I thought that my soul was created to be Nancy Dannison, and that when I died, the part of me that I called soul would go into heaven and live kind of a more glorified human life, uh, free of pain and suffering, and that was partly right. The part that was right is that it is the soul that goes into the afterlife. The body 
dies permanently. It decomposes into the chemicals of which it is composed. But the soul isn't part of the body. The soul is, think of it like when you're dreaming how you, you have a dreamscape and you have characters in your dreams. And you're usually in the dream. You're inside one of your dream characters looking out, participating in the dream. Well, that's what the soul is. The soul is source, God, inside physical matter, looking out and experiencing the physical world through that physical matter. And so when the body dies, the part that's source's own self-awareness and consciousness just returns to the afterlife. Talking with Nancy Dannison, you can check out her website, nancydannison.com. Is it possible for people on Earth to communicate with people who have crossed over to the afterlife? Yes, but not in the way you think. There are, you know, the afterlife has stages. And in some of those, you know, just like human life has various stages, you know, childhood, adulthood, blah, blah. Um, the afterlife has stages. And during some of those stages, um, we souls in the afterlife can communicate back to the part of us that's still in human life. My understanding from the afterlife is that if information is going to come to you while you're in human form, it will come from the part of you that's still in the afterlife. Not all of you gets incarnated. Some of you stays in the afterlife. And that the part of you that stays in the afterlife isn't going to go through a medium or a psychic or some stranger. They're going to go directly to you. And a lot of times they do it in a dream. Hmm. As far as you can tell, is reincarnation a choice for everybody? Yes. You can choose to incarnate or not. You can choose to incarnate anywhere in the universe. And while I was in the afterlife, I saw that I had lived hundreds and hundreds or maybe even thousands of physical lifetimes throughout the universe in every kind of creature and thing imaginable. Wow. Um do you believe in in ghosts? Are there ghosts on this earth of uh, beings that have lived previously? I do believe in ghosts, but what I learned in the afterlife is that they are not in the physical world. What happens is be because we all exist within the same mind, we all exist within Source's mind, from time to time we get a glimpse of another part of Source's mind, and we call it a ghost. But they're in the spiritual world. We're seeing into their world instead of them being in ours. Hmm. Uh, and in terms of, uh, I know you do a lot of workshops now, which are very well attended. I'm wondering what goes on at these workshops. If people are interested in learning about your experiences and learning about the afterlife, what do they learn if they participate in one of these workshops? I I learned so much in the afterlife that I uh, do webinars uh, on various slices of topics, like the one I'm going to do on January or on uh, June 25th is called Be Your Own Psychic, and it'll cover the information that I learned in the afterlife about, you know, how you can access information in the afterlife yourself. I did one on um, the root of all evil. You know, where does evil come from and why does it exist and why doesn't Source stop it or intervene? Um, Gosh, I can't think of some of the other topics. Mm -hmm. um, I did one on the purpose, the five purposes of life. Um, I did one on the stages of the afterlife. 
it's just, you know, whenever I think I've got about an hour's worth of information on a topic, I'll make that the subject of a webinar. Got it. And you, you indicated that some of the knowledge that you received included how and why religions in, evolved in the manner in which they did. Why did they? I mean, were you talking uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Sikhism, whatever the case may be? From the knowledge that you gained, why did these religions evolve along the way, along the manners in which they did? Because humans are innately afraid that early humans were terrified of the natural elements, and so they deified them. You know, they thought, well, you know, the wind must be a god, and if I do something to appease the wind, if I do something to please the wind, I will get fair winds for sailing. Same thing with the sun and the moon and, you know, everything that humans needed for survival and wanted to control they deified. And then, you know, as time passed, they started deifying planets and stars and, you know, just about anything. And then they started creating humanoid gods because it's far easier to understand a humanoid god and, and presumably far easier to control a humanoid god because you know what pleases a human. It must also please, you know, a god. And so religion evolved as Human needs for comfort and control over their lives evolved, and as society evolved, and more and more myths started creeping into what used to be the natural religions. And the purpose was to try to reduce some of the anxiety of this in a really wild and woolly existence that humans have to live. Hmm. Uh, now, um, I'll, I'll end with this just because I'm curious about it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, too. You indicated that you had seen how the, the Earth ends. Um, how does the Earth end? Is it a uh, some sort of is it a, a meteor, something like wiped out the dinosaurs or is it something like a, a nuclear war from a science fiction movie or is it something else? How, how does it all come to an end for us? It's none of the above. What um, when I was watching creation, I saw. You know, that Mars, I saw Mars while it was a green, verdant, you know, living planet, and I saw its destruction. And so when I saw Earth's destruction, you know, much later in time, I said to myself, oh, it goes the same way Mars did. But I don't remember what destroyed Mars, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything that humans would think of. Uh, any idea on, uh, on a time frame? It's not, uh, it's not before the end of the show or anything, is it? No, um, there is no time once you get outside the human body. You know, time is an artificial concept for measuring units of experience. So it's impossible to predict time in you know, in the larger scale. But it wasn't any time soon. I'm you know I'm guessing that it was like millions of years. All right. Well, that's uh, that's something. Uh, that's at least some good news. Nancy, I, I appreciate you being forth so forthcoming uh, with sharing your experiences on this. And uh, if people are curious about this, they could check out your website and your books at nancydanison.com. I hope we can talk again in the future. That would be wonderful, Frank. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy Dannison. That's some story. If you want to comment, you can do so. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-922. Wow, I'll tell you. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Will you take part in my life, my love? That is my dream. Life is but a dream. It's what you The harp tones, life is but a dream. If um, you're married to me, it is anything but a dream, let me tell you. Um, my wife has never seen the television program Frasier, which I know she'd really like. So, and you know, based on my interviews with Kelsey Grammer, that uh, I am a Kelsey Grammer fan and a Frasier fan. By the way, if you want to comment on any of my interviews with Nancy Dennison, we have uh, six open lines, 800 848 and so, um, Frasier is a spinoff of Cheers. So my wife, when I met her, had also never seen Cheers. So for the last year and a half to two years, we have been slowly working our way through the series Cheers. And right now, we're almost done. We're doing great. We're almost done with season eight. And I feel like I'm getting something done here. Where there's only one episode left of season eight. But it's funny. I put on a cheers for the two of us yesterday. And evidently, we watch it on Hulu. We watch it on Hulu, and I went to go put on a cheers. And I see that on Friday, they're removing the whole series from Hulu. Now... There are 11 seasons of Cheers. We're going to finish season eight, I would think, today. But that leaves, I mean, that's like quitting a marathon at the 23rd mile. She has put in so much effort to see this show, Cheers. I want her to be able to see the rest of the series, seasons 9, 10, and 11. So if anyone knows anything about how we can watch these last three seasons of Cheers on one of the thousand streaming networks that are out there, please email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple of things here uh, coming up in about 20 minutes. 
We got the AC report. I'm very excited about this AC report because I read this article, a beautiful piece of journalism, byproduct of uh, ProPublica and and, uh, the press of Atlantic City. And I I, I just linked to it. You can read it for yourself on my Facebook page, facebook.com. Uh, slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. But it looks like what happened is that the casinos in Atlantic City lied to the public and lied to the New Jersey State Legislature about how poorly they were doing when in actuality they were doing great. And they got a sweetheart deal and they got to pay less in taxes to the city of Atlantic City. And we have the journalist that did that story for ProPublica, Allison Birdo, coming up in about 20 minutes. Additionally, one of the uh, many email newsletters that I get every day is The Hustle. By the way, if you want to subscribe to The Hustle, I just linked to that on my Facebook page as well, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And if you use the referral code that I just tweeted, then I think I'm close to winning a piece of glassware if enough people subscribe to my referral code. But... I mean, the way I figure it, what's the harm in subscribing? And then if you don't like The Hustle, just do away with it. So The Hustle is a great newsletter. They have a lot of interesting articles, and I get a lot of great ideas for talk topics from there. And they had this interesting, this interesting article about wedding parties. And I think this is a bigger deal with women than with men. But this was the headline. Wedding party economics are getting out of hand. Macroeconomic factors have turned being a bridesmaid or a groomsman into a costly affair. Now, my brother just got married in Hawaii, but they really didn't do a big thing. I'm not sure if even I was technically a groomsman or not. I mean, I walked down the aisle, but, you know, I really wasn't sure what he, he my brother stood up there. So I guess his, my brother was his best man. But I don't think there was a formal wedding party, really. But, uh, you know, it's not clear. Destination weddings are kind of a different set of rules. But I know so many women, you know the phrase, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. I know so many women who've been asked to be bridesmaids over the years, and they have to spend all this money on dresses and makeup and hair. And I know a lot of women who, when they hear a friend of theirs is getting married, they just get crazy. They look at this as a $1,000 bill, maybe more. Guys, it's a little easier because if you don't own a tuxedo, all you have to do is rent a tux. That's it. Or even if you do own one, maybe you have to get a tuxedo that matches what the rest of the bridal party is doing. And you have to shower and shave. Other than that, what do you really have to do? There is a little bit more pressure to give a gift if you're in the bridal party. I did opt, by the way, to give a gift to my brother. Uh, and, And so did my sister, Claudia. She was over yesterday, and we were kind of comparing. I picked her up from the airport this morning, and then she came over later to catch up with her nephew, Carmine. And we were sort of comparing notes on the wedding and everything. And I said, what did you end up doing? Did you end up giving a gift? She said, yeah, Dad said to. And I said, what did you end up giving? And she mentioned an amount of money that she gave, and it happened to be the same amount of money that I gave, which I was pretty relieved about because had she given more than her older brother, then forget about it. Then I would have been, I would have looked foolish. And luckily, I guess we were of the same mind on that. Uh, so we ended up giving the same amount. Now, come to think of it, I probably should have given more, but that was the most that I could afford. But anyway, back to the economics 
of wedding parties. Being asked to be a bridesmaid or a groomsman should be an honor. It means you get to play a special part in someone's big day. But thanks to a large number of factors, a lot of people are looking at this role of a bridesmaid or a groomsman as an obligation due to the high cost. This is according to CNBC. On average, listen to this, on average, bridesmaids and groomsmen spend $825 to be in a wedding party. Some factors that contribute to this expense are rising fuel prices, which make the traveling to the bachelorette parties and the weddings more expensive, inflation, which has led to increased costs for wedding attire, supply chain issues, which have led to limited inventory for wedding attire. Of the consumers that were surveyed by CNBC, 50% of them incurred debt to participate in a wedding party. And 40% regret spending some of that money. So this year, there are expected to be 2.6 million weddings in this country. That's compared to 2.2 million weddings in 2019, pre-pandemic. I think what you're seeing is a lot of people that postponed the weddings, especially the big weddings and catering halls, during the pandemic in 2020, 2021, they're now getting married this year. This jump is understandable. That means there's a good chance some bridesmaids and groomsmen will take on those duties in multiple ceremonies. My sister was saying the same thing. You know, she's going to another wedding. She's got to give a gift at that one, and it's tough. And this leads to a big financial burden. So here's a question. Just because you get asked, do you have to say yes? I remember my friend Mike Wolf got married. My friend Mike Wolf got married maybe about 10 years ago. He's a great guy, a good friend. And he calls me about three weeks before his wedding. And Mike and I go back a ways. This is even 10 years ago we went back. So Mike Wolf calls me, gives me the wolf howl. And whenever the wolf howls, you have to go to where he calls. So I meet him at a bar somewhere after work. He was working in Wall Street at the time and meet him with some friends. And this is when I was working mornings. I was not really eager to extend my work day past 536 o'clock. But whenever the wolf howls, whenever the wolf howls, you have to call. Whenever the wolf howls, you have to call. So um, you have to abide by the call. So anyway, he says, look, I know you hate going to weddings, and I know you're not going to want to do this. But, and this is three weeks before his wedding. But I really would like you to be in my bridal party. And I said, Mike, I don't know who the f- you think you're kidding. This is a total, you, you have me filling in for somebody that declined. Otherwise, you would have asked me two months ago or three months ago or four months ago. So he said, no, that's not the case. I just know you only go to one wedding a year. And I know you don't really like weddings. I know this is not your thing. Um but it would mean a lot to me. So, of course, I did it. And, you know, I was happy to go and, and do the thing. But when someone asks me to be in their wedding party, I would have a tough time saying no. But roughly 20% of the people who were asked have turned down a wedding party invitation. And of those folks, 69% say the decision did not hurt their relationship with the bride or groom. If you do decide uh, to go that route, I am curious about what you think the best way is to politely decline an invitation. I am shocked that that number is as high as 20 percent because, I don't know, I would feel bad 
even in the case of Mike Wolf, I declined. I mean, I, I could have easily declined being in the wedding party, but I didn't do it. Because that's a commitment. You go to the rehearsal dinner. You got to go to this. You got to go to that. And I still went. So I am shocked at that number, that 20% of the people who were asked turned down a wedding party invitation. Are you? And have you ever turned down a wedding party invitation? Uh, Not a wedding invite, but an invite to be in the wedding party. 800-848-WABC. And I am a little surprised because if I asked somebody to be in my wedding and they said no, I think, I don't know, and I'm a pretty chilled out guy. I think I would be a little hurt. So 69% of the people say the decision did not hurt their relationship with the bride or groom. I could see people getting offended either way. There were some people, I would, like, for instance, Mike Wolf, I was concerned about wedding party reciprocity because he asked me to be in his wedding party, and then we didn't. I didn't have room, basically, to put him in mine, and we already had too many fellas. So I didn't ask him to be in mine. I was upset. I was concerned that he was going to be upset about that. But I think he survived. I think he was okay with it. But 69% say the decision did not hurt the relationship with the bride or groom. So three-part question, 800-848-WABC. One, are you getting hammered by the cost of what it takes to be in a bridal party these days? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Two, would you ever think of turning down a wedding party invitation? Or have you ever turned down a wedding party invitation? 800-848-9222. And three... Would that or has that hurt your relationship with the bride or groom? 800-848-WABC. In the case of women, I I really do think that so much is expected of them. They have to pay to get their hair done and pay for the dress and then the bridal shower, the bachelorette party. It's a big production. So I, um, I empathize with anybody that gets asked to be in a wedding party. I'm just curious how you handle or have handled situations like this. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Uh, Let me say hello to Leo on the Upper West Side who has been patiently holding. Hello, Leo. Leo! Leo! All right, Leo's got other priorities. Peter on Staten Island. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank. First of all, thank you. Went to the homestead out in, um, uh, at the Bagada the other day. It was excellent, just like you said, wonderful. Hey, what'd you yeah, have? What'd t- you order? What'd you order? Oh, oh, I had steak, and my wife had uh, she had steak, and a couple of people that were our guests, they ordered, uh, you know, everybody ordered steak. It was just fantastic. How, how about in terms of sides or appetizers? Oh, well, the garlic potatoes, and I had spinach, which was great, and I really enjoyed it. But I, when you were talking about the wedding party, I got a story for you. Oh, boy. One of my friends, we weren't that close, he asked me to be his best man. So I said to him, I says, okay, I'll be your best man. So I says, but you have friends of yours and people you work with, associates, that are closer with you. You see, I asked six people, and they all turned me down, so I finally <laughs> asked you. So now it, get, it gets even better. 
He gets a, a Rolls Royce limousine. It's like August. It's like 95 degrees, and the air conditioner don't work. So I'm partners with his sister-in-law, who was a big mobster's girlfriend that was in jail. You know, he, he was in jail. So she puts me on the phone, and, and he says to me, uh, you know, you're partners with my uh fiance, you know, it was his fiance they were married, and you better just behave yourself. I go, I'm gonna be behave myself. My wife is gonna be at the wedding too. So the air conditioners are now and they give me wine coolers now that oh it's just like a cold drink and I'm drinking these things, but they had a lot of alcohol in it. So by the time that I had to give the speech my voice was slurring like I was I sound like that guy that used to be with Dean Martin, you know, years ago. So what do you think? They show this on CTV, and they keep replaying it. And, like, I go in the supermarket, people go, oh, I know you. You're the drunk that was on CTV. I go, yeah, trying to give the speech. And I was, it was just really sick and humiliating. We had a good time, but... They kept playing that on CTV like they had nothing else to play, you know. That's very that's funny. That's what I just wanted to share with your audience and you. Hey, why did so many of uh, your friends' friends turn down the opportunity to be best man? Well, truthfully, my friend turned out to be not so nice a person. We actually <laughs> don't talk anymore. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's they, a bummer. They I'm realized sorry, it before I did. They realized it before I did. Yeah, I guess so. so. Uh, Peter, thank you very much. That's very funny. 800-848-WABC. Talking about the economics of wedding parties, have bridal parties specifically, have they gotten out of control? I don't know what could be done about it. I mean, I guess maybe there could be a... a, a, a worldwide gentleman's agreement to scale back on this. But I think maybe the genie's out of the bottle on this one. And wondering if you would ever consider turning down a wedding party invite because of the cost here. 800-848-WABC. Matt Plays, it's difficult enough to get you out of your, your house just to come to work. I am guessing that you'd have no problem turning down a bridal party invite. Absolutely not. Have you ever turned down a bridal party invite? I haven't turned down a bridal party invite, but I've, I have turned down people asking me to DJ their wedding. Oh, because I was like, I don't want to be, A, responsible because there's so much pressure when you're DJing mm. a friend's wedding. Yeah. And I also said, I'd rather be a guest at your wedding. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um I, I can understand that. I can understand that. All right. Well, so you've never turned down a bridal party invite, but you would if you were. Oh, yeah, yeah I would. You are. Have you ever served in a bridal party? No. You've never? Well, look, no. I feel like you're very lonely, Matt. I really do. I worry <laughs> about you. No, I'm not lonely. I'm fine. Yeah, you're, I feel like you're a little lonely. <laughs> I don't think you even know I, how lonely you are. I like to be alone. Yes. Okay. Good for you, then. I told All you, right. the pandemic was like my dream come true. Yeah. So be it. 800-848-WABC. Rick in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Rick. Good morning. Hey. Yes, sir. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, you, you hit on it while I was waiting about the cost. It's a lot of money. But first of all, is this their first wedding or is it their third? Like my nephew just got married the third time. I, 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 I It's like, look, I just three times now I got to give you presents. You're, you're in 20 years. You've had three weddings, and you're you're, you know, promising to God you're going to stay till death do us part. At a certain point, it's like I'm not going through all this again. I was very happy for you the first. I was pretty much happy for you the second. 
how many are they going to have? You know, I mean, at that point, marriages seem to be like not as you got married once in the old days. That's why people celebrated that you're going to till death do you part. Now it's just like a, a four or five year uh, lease, you know. You know, it's funny, Rick. It's a, a good point, Rick. Thank you for the call. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Someone I know got married not long ago, and uh, my wife and I went to the wedding. Someone that she was more acquainted with. I don't want to give too many details about who this person is. We go to the wedding, and uh, we gave a gift. And they get divorced within a year. And I said at the time, I, I did a segment on this on the radio. I said they should refund a prorated portion of their gift. But I guess they spent it, whatever, fine. She's dating another guy now. And I would not be shocked if they get married soon, soon. And I said to my wife, I said, if so-and-so gets married again to this fella, there is, I don't think we should give a gift. I mean, maybe we give enough if they're getting married in a catering hall somewhere to cover our plate so they don't go into debt for us. But I don't think we should give the same sort of lavish gift we did for the first wedding that ended in divorce within 10 months. Uh, What guarantee is there this time? Now, I don't want to sound cheap, but I feel at some point you are kind of taking advantage of people. You keep getting married, keep getting divorced, gift, 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 gift. It's just a little, it's a little much, a little much. AC report, speaking of a little bit much, casinos ripping off the taxpayers. If you were a taxpayer in New Jersey, you have a right to be ticked off, in my view. Listen to this discussion uh, that I'm about to have with Allison Birdo. ProPublica has done this great partnership with the Press of Atlantic City. This is journalism at its finest. And... This article, which you can read, I just posted on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, will open your eyes about what's happening in Trenton. Straight ahead. WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the AC Report. Once again, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities in the entire world, Atlantic City, New Jersey, Monopoly City, a city which for the last 50 years or so has had its fortunes inexorably tied to the fortunes of its casinos, some of the county's biggest employers, and the thing that's really since the 1970s come to define Atlantic City. Now, occasionally when we do these segments, and we've talked to everybody, we've talked to representatives from the casino industry, 
country. We've talked to politicians. We've talked to local business owners. We've talked to local journalists. And occasionally, I've been accused of trying to paint too rosy a picture of what's going on in Atlantic City. I don't think that's accurate, but whatever. Critics be critics. And uh, occasionally, I've been saying, I've been called uh, a cheerleader for the various businesses in Atlantic City, including the casino industry. Well, what do you do? If the interests of the casino industry and the casinos don't necessarily jive with the interests of Atlantic City as a whole. Well, you're about to find out because I just read an article, which is one of the most fantastic pieces of journalism I've read ever. And in a few short pages, is able to explain clearly in ways that even a layman like me can understand exactly what's happening with the finances and the economy of Atlantic City, but it also is a textbook example of what may be wrong with some aspects of New Jersey government as a whole. Uh, that's why I am very, very pleased to welcome Allison Bordeaux. She is the, she's a local reporting fellow with uh, ProPublica's local reporting network, and uh, she's also uh, with the Press of Atlantic City. Allison, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah, thanks, Frank, for having me. Uh, so before we get into the substance of your article on the Atlantic City casinos and their tax burden, explain to me this partnership with ProPublica and the press of Atlantic City. I'm a big believer in local journalism, and I think a lot of our listeners, whether on the left or on the right or non-political, they shake their heads uh, at the demise and the decline in local journalism in a lot of small and mid-sized cities. What exactly is this partnership and how does it work? Uh, so the partnership um, is uh, funded by ProPublica. It allows for the Press of Atlantic City, which, um, as you referenced, is a uh, local newsroom that's undergone some um, financial difficulties, um, like most of the industry in recent years. It allows this uh, local newspaper to have an investigative reporter on the ground in Atlantic City. It's uh, really terrific. I wish every city uh, had a newspaper that had uh, this sort of investigative journalism. Now, uh, the the first line in um, A Christmas Carol is Marley was dead to begin with. And you have to understand this before you ex understand anything that happens in the book. I think for our listeners to understand exactly what's happening in Atlantic City right now, they need to understand what the pilot program is. W can you explain to folks who might be hearing this term for the first time or may have heard the term but not necessarily understood what it is, what exactly is the pilot program and what's the rationale behind the pilot program? Sure, great question. So pilot stands for payment in lieu of taxes, and it's a, a program that you would see in other municipalities around New Jersey as well as you know other places around the country. Um, it's uh, in Atlantic City specifically referencing the casino's payment in lieu of property taxes. So um, at least for um, Atlantic City, this came about um, following a particularly financially tumultuous time for both the casino industry and uh, the city itself. Um, coming off of casino expansion in neighboring states starting in 2006-07, um, you know, the financial crisis the whole nation went through in 2008, and um, Sandy down here in New, Jer in New Jersey, um, all of these financial events um, hit at, and 
Subsequently, uh, four casinos ended up closing in a very short period of time. Um, and uh, so it became a very uh, difficult financial situation for Atlantic City itself as um, casinos having their uh, property values drop um, through successful challenges within the court system. So sort of all of those financial events that I ticked off, um, it, it hurt the gaming properties. So while they were on a regular property tax system, they started to um, challenge their uh, bills with the uh, tax courts and successfully winning those challenges. That led to Atlantic City having to issue millions of dollars in refunds, putting it in a ton of debt. So it's a lot of backstory, but eventually we get to 2016 when uh, lawmakers passed a bill putting casinos on a payment in lieu of property tax program known as Pilot here. So it's sort of win-win in that if the casinos aren't doing well, they don't necessarily have to pay as much as they would in property taxes. And uh, the city doesn't have to spend a lot of time in lengthy and costly court hearings fighting with the casinos over what they should pay. That it sounds like the gist of it, right? Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right, uh, Frank. And um, by agreeing to the Pilot Act, the casinos agreed that they would no longer challenge these taxes in court. Um, so it provided a bit of predictability for both the industry and the municipality. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about what happened with the pandemic. Uh, New Jersey casinos, Atlantic City casinos were closed for a long time as a result of the the shutdown. Uh, and I guess it stands to reason that there'd be less casino revenue coming in with all these casinos cl- uh, closed. What exactly did the closure during the pandemic mean for Atlantic City casinos? And what did the legislature do with respect to the pilot program and the money that the casinos needed to pay to Atlantic City? Right. So um, Atlantic City's uh, casinos were closed, like a lot of uh, entertainment venues around the state and the country, for several months during uh, 2020. They started to reopen in 2020 and had capacity limits for some time. So in that first year of the pandemic, it was a rough year for casinos. Um, the one sort of positive for them was they started to see a slight uh, uptick in um, sports wagering revenue uh, bets being made online, and then also uh, a strong increase in Internet um, bets just on any old casino game. So. Um, that started in 2020, and then in 2021, as those capacity limits um, got uh, lessened and eventually removed altogether, we started to see in-person gaming come back as well. Um, but more to the point, um, as opposed to talking about revenues, if you look at the gross operating profits of the casinos, 2020 was a tough year, but 2021 was uh, their highest, the industry's highest annual profit since 2010. So um, it it was a redistribution of revenue and where people were making their bets, but um, the profits for the casinos um, are back to where we saw them more than 10 years ago. So the casinos in Atlantic City, just to be clear, in 2021 had their most profitable year in the last decade. That's uh, uh, including the pandemic years, including the pre-pandemic years. They did better in 2021 than they did in a decade. So I guess it would stand to reason they'd be expected to pay more in taxes than they had in, in the past decade. Did that happen? So their, uh, the tax bill that they would pay for pilot this year um, 
So just talking about that that pilot bill, which is which provides revenue for Atlantic City, its school district, and the, and the county. And um, as far as uh, taxation on casinos goes, the vast majority of uh, those revenues goes to the state, not the local uh, municipalities. So um, this year, because of the change in the pilot uh, act that happened in late December uh, last year, casinos will pay $110 million in pilot. And that's the lowest amount of pilot since the program began. So the program began in 2017 with a set amount of $120 million. And it's been more than that every year since until uh, lawmakers made this change to the pilot act uh, halfway through the program. So that's pretty wild. What exactly did the legislature do differently, and um, what did the casinos claim about how they were doing financially in 2021? So I'm going to take that second question first. So starting in um, November, we saw uh, reports from the Division of Gaming Enforcement that showed that casinos were um, year-to-date for the first three quarters of 2021, exceed, uh, exceeding their pre-pandemic level. So gross operating profits were better than in 2019. So then at the same time, they were telling lawmakers that they were potentially in grave danger due to the pandemic. Um, so th- that was sort of the narrative coming from the casinos. And then uh, what the pilot, what the change um, made to the pilot law late last year, there were two key changes. So the pilot law for the industry ties its payment to the industry-wide gross gaming revenue. So um, if they make you know a certain amount of money in gross gaming revenue, that would mean their pilot would be X dollar amount. So it lowered that base amount, um, which is key because it was as high as $165 million in the original bill. That's been lowered to... Um, 120 million at, at its maximum. So that's one thing. And then setting setting that part aside, um, the other key change is there were gross gaming revenue was one of the factors to use to determine how much a casino would pay for its uh, individual portion of that pilot amount. Well, historically, gross gaming revenue in that formula included all types of bets made, whether that was a sports bet an internet bet or somebody playing the slots within the casino or table game. Um, This bill changed that and excluded any bets made, whether on sports or casino games that were made online, any online revenue was now excluded from the, um, from the formula. So it significantly lowers um, that factor for each casino. So uh, this is uh, pretty wild, and I know when we talk about hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes listeners' eyes glaze over. But in a nutshell, uh, it seems like the casinos paid $55 million less, thereabouts, in in revenue under this pilot program to Atlantic City than they should have. I, I mean, is, is that is that accurate based on your looking at the data? So – uh, what my reporting shows is that if the uh, Pilot Act was not amended, the casinos would have paid $55 million more in pilot, and that $55 million was dispersed among the city, the school district, and uh, the county. The city would have received 40, about $41 million of that. So and since it, the law has changed, sorry. the city, since the law changed late last year, 
the city effectively is receiving $41 million less than if the law had never um, changed from its original version. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Alison Birdo. She's a local reporting network fellow with ProPublica and uh, did this terrific article that uh, you can read in the press of Atlantic City and ProPublica. I've linked to it on my Facebook page. You can give it a read right now at Facebook pay, uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Um, by the way, uh, I know you mentioned sports wagering and that how that was sort of a lifeline to the Atlantic City casinos. What do um, what did online revenue and online gaming revenue mean for the Atlantic City casinos? Was that a significant revenue generator for them as well? So um, online revenue for uh, casinos last year uh, surpassed um, $1 billion. Um, So when the casino industry as a whole brought in uh, $4.2 billion in gaming revenue, um, it's it's pretty significant. It's, you know, a little bit, they took in, it was a little bit more than a quarter. Wow. Uh, Now, Atlantic City is not exactly flush with cash. As you report in your article here, Atlantic City has been in a position, even though they're dealing with uh, poverty, even though they're dealing with crime like a lot of other cities are, they've been forced to cut back on a lot of key programs, including making cuts to their police force. Uh, Atlantic City is not exactly flush with cash, are they? So uh, Atlantic City has a balanced budget, um, but I, I think that the the idea here is that um, casinos, when they were first uh, legalized in New Jersey back in the 70s, um, there was a, a promise from lawmakers that this was um, an industry that would be um, a unique tool for urban redevelopment in Atlantic City. And... Uh, when you look at some of the metrics that um, continue to describe Atlantic City's population, um, like its poverty rate, its unemployment rate, um, these things uh, don't necessarily show a um, revitalized urban center. Uh, I guess the most jarring aspect of this, and there are several elected officials quoted in your piece, the county executive, Denny Levinson, city councilman, Jesse Kurtz, who, you know, everybody I think knows is a friend of mine, uh, as several of the other state legislators, is that it seems like the fortunes were misrepresented by the casinos to the state legislature. It seems like the casinos were crying poverty at a time when they were doing better than they had in a long time. Do we know if the casinos were mistaken in their representation or did they intentionally deceive the legislators and the public? Uh, you know, that's a tough question. I, I can't necessarily um, say that this was uh, intentional. I can say that um, former gaming reg- regulator um, and a current um, consultant to the gaming industry told me that um, claiming that jobs will be lost or casinos could close is a common negotiating tactic for the industry. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, that's something that you might see in other industries as well. 
Mm. And I guess that's always the argument about whether corporate welfare, right? So-called corporate welfare is that, uh, and we had this discussion in New York recently as it relates to the Buffalo Bills, but we frequently have it with respect to sports stadiums and other large industries, even hospitals and other things that um, the, you have to give them a sweetheart deal for lack of a better discussion. Otherwise it's going to cause all these jobs to leave town. Um, Steve Sweeney, the former president of the state Senate who was defeated for reelection, he says uh, casinos would have closed, but the, the other industry analysts, including the former head of the CRDA that you spoke with, he says that's not true. Yes, that's, that's, that's correct. So, um, the former Senate president um, stood by his uh, position that if the law had not changed, as many as four casinos could close um, solely from the increase in this tax obligation. Uh, the gaming analysts and uh, former regulars that I sp- spoke to disagreed with that. Um, they did caution that, um, you know, resorts was not in a um, the best financial position. So that was one that may um, have some cause for concern, but the rest they had, um, you know, had expressed no concerns about. Um, And, you know, to be fair, Bally's is reporting, um, you know, negative uh, on on the negative side for gross operating profits um, in the last uh, year or so. Um, That property was just recently acquired by that company. And, uh, you know, those corporate executives say on its earning calls to its shareholders that it's expecting that property to lose money, um, Mm. uh, be, and it'll be po- they're expecting it to be positive uh, in 2023. Aside from Senator Sweeney, um, what are other state lawmakers saying, uh, Democrat and Republican, that represent the area and that are leaders in the state legislature in general? Are, are they proud of this situation where where they redid the formula for the pilot law to allow the casinos to pay less than they would have? Or is there some regret here? Uh, you know, I can't really say if they're um, proud or not. I, I will say that um, the representatives for District 2, which includes most of Atlantic County um, and includes Atlantic City, uh, those are Senator Palestina um, and uh, former Assemblyman um, Armado and Mazio, and then the current Assemblyman uh, Guardian and Assemblywoman uh, Swift, that all of them oppose the legislation. So, um, and the three that were in office last year voted against it. And, and is this a bipartisan, the bipartisan opposition to the legislation, Democrat and Republican? It's not as if Democrats are all for this and Republicans are against it or vice versa? Aside from um, Assemblyman Armato and Assemblyman uh, Mazio, who are both Democrats that voted against the bill, there were um, a few others. Um, sort of uh, one that comes to mind is um, in a North Jersey representative, um, Ben Gopal, who is often outspoken about uh, corporate welfare. Oh, talking with Allison Berto, she's a local reporting network fellow with ProPublica and has done this great piece in partnership with the uh, Press of Atlantic City on the changes that were made to the pilot law uh, in Atlantic City and resulted 
based on my reading of the data in this article, in the casinos paying finance, substantially less than they would have had the formula remain uh, unchanged. And uh, Allison, I appreciate in the era in which we live in where you have um, media personalities trying to find the most hyperbolic talking points they can, you trying to go you know, uh, out of your way to be as fair as possible to everybody, seeking comment from Senator Sweeney and from the casino industry. Um, Governor Murphy, he was on board with this change to the uh, pilot program as as well, right? As far as I know, yes. Um, he signed the bill into law within um, you know twenty four hours of the uh, it getting passed by both houses in Trenton. Um, he, I, as you may remember, um, it was an odd time to see comment from Governor Murphy um, due to the COVID pandemic. There were COVID mm. briefings where only a, a handful of reporters were able to um, participate in those. And, you know, they did a great job um, in asking questions sort of on behalf of the rest of New Jersey. And um, there was, uh, you know, just ahead of this bill becoming law, he was asked if um, for his opinion on it. And he told reporters that it was all good by him. So we we discussed the substantial online gaming revenues that these casinos have taken in. Senator Sweeney actually moved to exempt online gaming revenues from the pilot formula. What was the possible rationale for sponsoring legislation to exempt all online gaming revenue from the pilot formula? So uh, the way that uh, casinos tell it is that – the contracts that they have with third-party companies that are often tech companies or some sort of digital platform, um, those contracts, uh, you know, aren't really set up in the casino's favor. And uh, another point that they make is the majority of the revenue is coming through third-party platforms. So um, in addition to um, a casino license holder having its own branded platform like a BetMGM or in Caesar's case now, William Hill, um, it can also um, have partnerships with other companies that uh, have a URL as well that where people take bets. So they um, argued that their partners were having um, were bringing in more of the revenue than their own platforms. I see. Now, I, I guess the if you look at the quotes from people like Senator Palestina, from Councilman Kurtz in your article, uh, from uh, County Executive Dennis Levinson, from the former head of the CRDA, it looks to me like the uh, casino misrepresented how well they were doing financially, and they got a, a sweetheart deal from politicians because of it. And, you know, I I guess my big question, and this is more of a rhetorical question than one that can be answered based on your data and and reporting, but you're welcome to try, is how did the casinos get away with this? I think that's uh, the, yeah, I think that's a great rhetorical question. I think that um, it's something that um, taxpayers in Atlantic City should put towards their lawmakers. Um, A lot of the questions that I was asking of the casinos, of the regulators, of Wall Street analysts, were was all information that was available to lawmakers and, um, you know, possibly easier for them to get since they are a lawmaker instead of a journalist fi- filing uh, public records requests. So, um, you know, I, I think it's up to the public to hold lawmakers accountable to uh, their actions. 
I, I could talk with you about this all day, but you've already been so generous with your time. Uh, three final things that I just have to ask you about before uh, we let you go. One, what can be done about this next year in, in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Obviously, Senator Sweeney is no longer there, who was very close to the casino industry, and he is not in as influential a position as he was, certainly. But w- beyond hoping that the legislature acts in a more enlightened way next year. Is there anything that can be done next year to make sure this doesn't happen again? So I think one thing that um, will determine whether something will happen next year, whatever that may be, is the outcome of a lawsuit um, that the county made against the state of New Jersey um, to prevent them from implementing this new pilot law. Um, Mm. So the lower court has already decided Atlantic County's favor, but the um, state has you know, made it clear that it will continue to appeal uh, this decision. So, um, you know, I think we will be able to have a better sense of what next steps are once that case is completely resolved. You write that they, in 1984, there was already some concern that the money from the casinos wasn't necessarily flowing to the residents of Atlantic City that needed it. So they created something called the Investment Alternative Tax, or IAT, uh, to ensure that the industry invested in Atlantic City. Uh, The current situation notwithstanding, how has that served the residents of Atlantic City? Have we seen the casino money getting to folks that need it? So um, there's actually been a lot of uh, reporting on um, how the investment alternative tax revenues have been spent um, by my colleagues in the past. So um, we know that some of that money was spent in Atlantic City to fund key projects like the walk and outlet mall, um, a, uh, the tunnel, the Brigantine tunnel, um, you know, but it, we also are aware of, um, you know, accusations of that money being spent sort of um, just to the benefit of the casinos um, as it was used to help fund um, Harris Conference Center. Uh, that money over the years had also been spent in other municipalities around New- North Jersey, sort of famously it helped to fund a Yoga Berra Museum. Um, in North Jersey. Um, So actually part of the situation now um, is much of that IAT money is dedicated to um, paying either Atlantic City's debt um, or as part of this new act, uh, we'll see some more funding going to Atlantic City's general fund for and for other projects around the city. Well, it's a masterful piece of uh, reporting. I'll just end with this. And uh, again, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. But the issue of the state takeover of Atlantic City was something that was opposed by both Democrat and Republican lawmakers within um, Atlantic City. And it was something that was supported by both Democrat and Republican lawmakers in Trenton. If the state takeover hadn't happened and Atlantic City still had control of its, you know, of its finances and of its fortune, would this situation still have unfolded the way in which it did? Would it still have been the state legislature that got to make the final call about changing the pilot formula? So one of the things to keep in mind is that the state is uh, the government that legalized gambling in New Jersey. So 
While there are some local uh, regulations around casinos, the vast majority of them come from the state. So um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question directly, but um, the, the, the situation, it's hard to take to know if the situation would have panned out the way it did because the state takeover was directly linked to pilot going out. So that was, uh, you know, written into the legislation that both of those things had to happen. Understood. Um, so I'm, so um, it may, but um, yeah, I just appreciate you taking the time to go over what has been a very, um, you know, com- uh, complicated tax bill that um, has a lot of uh, meaning for Atlantic City. Right. So the pilot and the state takeover sort of went hand in hand. It's not as if you'd necessarily have the pilot without the state takeover and uh, vice versa. So I I appreciate you uh, clarifying that as well. And uh, this seems to be one of those rare issues where you see progressives uh, like the Working Families Party and other left-leaning watchdogs on the same side as conservative Republican politicians like uh, Jesse Kurtz and and Denny Levinson. Uh, Allison, thanks for your great work on this. And And uh, I can't wait to read whatever you do next. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Allison Berto, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC, 1-800-848-9222. In my view, uh, uh, this is pretty outrageous, what happened here. Uh, This is the worst type of Trenton insider politics, and uh, this is uh, an industry which uh, clearly has way too much influence with the folks that were regulating it. That's just my view. But uh, read the article, decide for yourself. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Moreno. 77 WABC. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. MC Hammer, or simply Hammer, one of uh, the great hits uh, from the early 1990s. Uh, can't touch this indeed. 800-848-WABC. We'll take your calls in a moment. I will tell you a true story three or four weeks ago. It was one of those things where I had just left the house and my wife had just come home. I don't remember the situation exactly. But I was leaving for something and she was coming home from somewhere. And she messages me after she gets home and she says, were you cooking something? I said, no. She said, because I smell something. She said, I, it smells like fire or something. I said, honey, I, I don't know. So a couple of days later, she said, you know, that smell it's back. It smells like smoke or ash. Were you burning something? Did you smoke in the house? No, of course not. It stinks <laughs> in here. So there's a couple of other instances where she says that she smells fire or smoke or ash. And by and large, you know, my sense of smell is not the greatest. I didn't really I didn't smell anything. And then a couple of times when I was up before her, which I generally am on Saturdays and Sundays, I'd be walking around, and you get a certain part of the house, and I would smell. 
an ash smell. Not a bad smell, but it almost smelled like, um, you know, like a fire. Like, you know, when you when you burn a fireplace, firewood, you have a fireplace. So I did smell it. I noticed it. And if I notice it, it's noticeable. So two or three days ago, it might have even been right before I left for Hawaii. My wife says to me, you know, I think I've figured out what that smell is. I said, really, what? She said, I think we have a fireplace and with a chimney. The fireplace without a chimney would be a really rough situation. So she said, I think I've noticed it mostly when it rains. She said, I think, you know, we usually have the fireplace cleaned at the beginning of the fire season, at the beginning of winter or fall, and that's when we have it cleaned. And she said, I think maybe the chimney is dirty, and when it's raining, it's causing some of the ash to be dislodged or something. So she does this meticulous cleaning of the fireplace with a vacuum cleaner and a broom and everything. She literally looked like Cinderella. She wore, she had mice assisting her and everything. It was really something. And then she said, in addition to the cleaning that I'm doing, she said, I'm going to hire the people that we come, we hire to clean the chimney. They're called the Green Ductors, which I think is a pretty clever name, the Green Ductors. And so I said, okay, all right. So they came yesterday while I was sleeping during the day. And she was concerned they were going to wake up both Carmine and me. They woke up neither of us, which was a big win. And they cleaned the chimney out. And they charged us apparently $200, these green ductors. We'd see why they got how they got so green. Am I right? So tomorrow, it's raining right now here in New York. So tomorrow's going to be the first big test of this. Was this green ducting and Rachel cleaning of the fireplace and chimney successful in doing away with this ash smell which has permeated our house? Only time will tell. I'll report back tomorrow. Questions, comments, thoughts. I have seven open lines for you. Brian Kilmeade joining me in 35 minutes. 1-800-848-WABC. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano uh, coming up in 27 minutes we're going to give you an opportunity to win one thousand uh, dollars stay tuned for that one coming up in 29 minutes we're going to talk with the great brian kilmeade my colleague who you can hear on the radio every morning from 10 a.m to noon uh, quite be quite possibly the hardest working man in show business a brilliant brilliant guy uh, and a hard worker so I'm looking forward to it. And just a nice guy, actually. And we'll, we'll chat with him a little bit later. It's funny. 
all the rage now is Top Gun, Top Gun, Top Gun, Top Gun, Top Gun, Top Gun, Top Gun. And when I had Kelsey Grammer on the radio last, they I, one of the questions I asked him was, you know, they brought back Frazier. They brought back Roseanne. They brought back Will and Grace. They brought back Sex and the City. They brought back The X-Files. And one of the questions I asked him was, why is everything new, again, old? And it's funny. If you look at the motion pictures that seem to be doing very well at the box office, and I'm talking primarily the theatrical motion pictures, not necessarily the ones that are available on platforms like Netflix, but it's true on the streaming platforms to some extent as well. If you look at the motion pictures that are doing very well, if you look at the television programs that are doing very well, so many of them are in the category of either sequels or remakes. And the tempting thing to do is to say, well, they don't have any original ideas. Those uh, those Hollywood elitists uh, that we all uh, can't stand, they don't have any original ideas. I don't think it's true. I think that the reason you see Fast and the Furious 93 and the reason you see uh, five remakes of the film Halloween is because these franchises are already, they already have an embedded fan base They already have a a base that understands what that product is and likes the product and are more likely to purchase or sample or view something that is a continuation of that product. And sometimes a sequel is done very well, whether it's a sequel to a television program or sequel to a movie. One of the best examples of a spinoff that was a continuation of an original story even though it had a new cast and everything, was Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek The Next Generation is a sequel set about 90 years in the future from where the original series took place. Very, very successful, very well done. We've also seen occasionally a successful reimagining of some television series. By far, the best example that I could think of is the Battlestar Galactica reimagining. I don't uh, look, I love the original Battlestar Galactica with Richard Hatch and Dirk Benedict and Lauren Green and uh, all these great actors. Uh, but there's no way that you can say the original Battlestar Galactica is superior in terms of quality to the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. There's just no way. There's no objective way you could look at both of those and say, yeah, the oh, the uh, the original is superior. It's not. It's not. Uh, and I love the original. But and had a lot going for it, but it's not superior to the reimagining. So it got me thinking because I saw a headline yesterday that a very big film from a couple of years ago that caused a very big discussion about mental illness. It caused a big stir in the comic book community, and it 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 was a big Oscar winner. Is getting a sequel. Announced officially yesterday that this film will now have a sequel. You're serious, aren't you? You're telling us you killed those three young men on the subway? Mm-hmm. And why should we believe you? You got nothing left to lose. 
Nothing can hurt me anymore. <laughs> My life is nothing but a comedy. But that film was The Joker, a terrific scene uh, between between Robert De Niro as Murray Franklin, the talk show host there, and uh, and the star of the uh, film, Joaquin Phoenix, who played Arthur Fleck as the Joker. By the way, I, I do believe, and if I ever get to interview Todd Phillips, who wrote and directed that film, I believe that they based that character of Murray Franklin, who's a talk show host in Gotham City, and Gotham City is basically New York. I believe they based that on my friend Joe Franklin. I truly believe that. Uh, I really do think that he's based on Joe Frank. Now, he's not like Joe in terms of personality. He was a little more serious than Joe, but he dresses a little bit like Joe and has the same last name as Joe. So I do think they based that at least loosely on Joe Franklin. But this has been building for a while. And while Joaquin Phoenix hasn't yet signed a deal to reprise his role as the disturbed, murderous anarchist Arthur Fleck, in the sequel to The Joker, which grossed a billion dollars, the film is a, go, is a go. Director Todd Phillips revealed yesterday on Instagram that there is a Joker sequel script that he just wrote and that Joaquin Phoenix, who won an Oscar for that role of The Joker, has read. So apparently Joaquin Phoenix is negotiating. He's trying to get a princely salary. I'm sure they'll get it. he'll get it now that he's an Oscar winner especially. And I'm sure uh, that... Uh, that he'll do the film. I mean, I'm not sure, but who knows? Joaquin Phoenix is a little wacky anyway. But it got me thinking because I read another article that another one of my favorite science fiction television programs is getting a sequel. Now, this program was terrific. Not nearly as well known as Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Constantly compared to Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Not nearly as financially uh, a, a windfall for its parent company as the Joker was for its parent company. But Babylon 5, which was the story of a space station in the future, is being reimagined. Reimagined. Not a sequel, but a reimagining. If you're not familiar with Babylon 5, this sort of opening monologue from the first season kind of explains what the show was all about. It was the dawn of the third age of mankind, ten years after the Earth-Minbari War. The Babylon Project was a dream given form. Its goal, to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call. Home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2258. The name of the place is Babylon 5. Ah, I love it. That that was the worst season of that show, and I still get goosebumps just listening to that narration. Things did not work out too well for uh, the actor who played uh, G- uh, Jeffrey Sinclair there. It is uh was by the way, that was a problem with the with the series. You know who was on that show? 
was Jerry Doyle, the talk show host. Before he was a talk show host, he was an actor. He was one of the stars of that show. And I met him, and um, I said I really enjoyed the show, and I told him uh, some specific scenes that he was in that I really, really enjoyed. And he, we talked about all the people on the show that ended up dying. And lo and behold, a couple of years after we had that conversation, he died. So they are doing not a sequel, not a spinoff that's a direct sequel. They're doing a from-the-ground-up reboot of that show. So it got me thinking, if you can't beat them, join them. It got me thinking that if we recognize that Hollywood sees its future and its present in sequels and remakes, what be it on television or in the movies, do you want to see a sequel or a remake of? I made a list of one, two, three, four, four shows just now that I'd love to see a sequel or a remake of. What would you like to see them bring back? That's all the rage now. You know, one of the top shows on ABC is still The Connors, which was basically a, a spinoff of Roseanne, which was a continuation of the original Roseanne. What would you like to see Hollywood bring back? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. One of the things that I do find exciting every January is seeing what characters enter the public domain. For instance, now Winnie the Pooh has entered the public domain and Piglet, Piglet has entered the public domain. So you're going to see Winnie the Pooh everywhere. And you could make a movie with Winnie the Pooh. And you they're making a horror movie all about Winnie the Pooh and his taste for honey and where he's a murderer or something. And he and Piglet are killing people like crazy. But the other characters that people are familiar with that were created later, characters like Tigger, then he's not in the public domain. So he's not in the movie. But it, it, you could even make a Pretty good, you know, I don't know, pretty good. You could make a remake or a sequel to some of these public domain characters once they enter. A couple of years, you could see people like Superman and Mickey Mouse in the public domain, which the creators or the or the, the, the copyright holders currently of these characters are terrified about. They're trying to get an extension. They say, well, we don't want to see uh, Mickey Mouse in a pornographic film or something like that. But once you get these characters in the public domain, then boom, they're out there. They're in. For instance, you know, all, almost all of Shakespeare is in the public domain. I believe uh, that um, Robin Hood is in the public domain. That's why you could see three or four Robin Hood movies come out in any given year. You could make, uh, you know, any kind of Hamlet movie you want. But sometimes you have to rely upon they, them, the Hollywood elite, the people that make movies, the people that make television shows. And so that has me wondering... At 800-848-WABC, what do you want to see them, whoever they are? And by they, we mean the, the Hollywood studios. What do you want to see them bring back as either a reboot, a remake, or a sequel? Could be a movie, could be a television program. Don't say Mission Impossible 75. Don't say Fast and the Furious 93. I would love to hear some offbeat, really original suggestions. I I have made a list of one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three of them are relatively obscure. 
Two of them, I think, were pretty well known. You want to hear my five? Okay. Here are my five, and then I want to hear yours. 800-848-WABC. One, I loved this show. And for some reason, I ended up re- you know, kind of going down a rabbit hole yesterday, researching it to see if it was still available anywhere. There was a show on about 30 years ago, only lasted two seasons. I've always been fond of science fiction, even 30 years ago. And 30 years ago is when I was really in my prime TV watching days. 30 years ago, there was a television program called Time Tracks. It was a science fiction television show where you had this police officer sent from 200 years in the future. He he lived 200 years from now. He was sent back in time to apprehend and return all these convicted criminals who escaped prison in the future. See, what happened in the year 22-something or 23-something, you had all these criminals that found a way, 2193, that was the year, you found found all these criminals that found a way to use a time machine to go back in time to hide out as fugitives in the year 1993. And this, this I don't remember, the, the I'll look up the cop's name, but this cop has to, Darian Lambert, a police detective of that period, has to go back in time to 1993 to chase all these guys down. Now, I haven't seen the show in 30 years. For all I know, it was cheesy. I'm sure it was campy, but I remember loving this show, and I was disappointed it only lasted uh, two seasons. I would love to see them do a remake of this because it was well-received by viewers um, from what I remember, even even though it was canceled. That's one show, uh, relatively obscure. I'd love to see them do a remake of that show. Uh, another one that was kind of a silly show, again, from 30 years ago. And I'm sorry to make everything so long ago, but that's when I was really in my prime TV watching days. Was called They Came From Outer Space. I don't know if you ever saw this, but this was a comedy. And I thought it was hysterical. This was a television show um, from more than 30 years ago, from 1990 and 1991, where you had these two teenage alien fraternal twins from the planet Crouton. And they decide to travel through California in a 1959 classic red Chevy Corvette in an effort to pick up women and to learn more about life on Earth. And it was basically a kid's show. And, you know, 30 years ago, I was a kid. And they're pursued by this pair of bumbling Air Force officers. I thought... I love the theme song on this show, too. It was really cool. I don't know if we could find it, Matt, but um, it was one of those sh- theme songs where it it's still in my head 33 years later, 32 years later. I love that show. I would love to see them bring that back. 800-848-9222. The uh, theme song, the uh, intro is on um, the YouTube. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page to see if it gets stuck in your head, number one, and uh, if you if jogs any memories. Those are the two that I'll mention now. I have a few others. What would you like to see them bring back? 800-848-WABC. Renee is on Staten Island. Hello, Renee. Hi. I'd like to see Married with Children become a movie. Well, that's interesting. Um, 
But aren't all the characters, I mean, I think um, Ed O'Neill and Katie Seagal could do- both definitely recreate their roles easily. But don't you think the kids are probably too old, uh, David Fastino and well, Christina old, Applegate? Maybe they, could, maybe they could, you know, uh, have other people play the kids. That's a possibility. Oh, so you would want, you, you would you want a sequel or a remake? A sequel. Oh, a sequel. So... Maybe yeah. like they did with the Brady Bunch movies. Maybe they do it where absolutely, the kids have absolutely. kids themselves. I think would, yeah, I think that would be really great. They could, you know, show them in their younger forms, and then they could show them the real actors later uh, when they're older. I like it. I like it, Renee. I was a big fan of that series. You'll remember when uh, Doug McIntyre was here. He was a writer on that show. We spent a lot of time talking about that show. One eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. A sequel or a remake that they should do. What do you think? Sean in Park Ridge. Hello. Hey, uh, Frank, I'm going to need your help on this one. Um, I do remember the name of the movie, and it was kind of interesting. It was called The Time Machine. And do you remember that movie? Well, I mean, that's the one that's based on the H.G. Wells novel, right? Right, right. And in the beginning of the movie, the guy, I remember he's in a park and somebody goes and robs him. And he's, I think, going to be engaged to his this girl and, and then she winds up dying. Yeah, I mean, that's, the, to... that, that's with the troglodytes and the Eloy, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and at the end, all this underground world, like, you know, under, you know it gets yeah. all kind of crazy and stuff. Uh, but I thought the guy who was the main character, who I don't know if he was famous or not, I thought he was brilliant. He was like perfect for that role. Yeah, I think the um the main character, that's a good question. Um I think the main character might have been Alan Young. Um but I'll have to I'll have to look that one up. They made a remake of that of that film about about 18, about 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I'm, that's what I'm referring to because the guy who played him he had like a very like chiseled uh, face and stuff, distinguished look, and his his look was just perfect for that role. He was absolutely perfect, and he wasn't like a really. Oh well, huge in the actor. remake, in the remake, it was Guy Pierce was the actor that starred in it. Oh, is that who it was? Yeah. Okay. So you want a sequel to the remake? I thought it would be kind of interesting because okay. I'll be honest with you, I'm not normally into those kind of movies. But I thought it was really well done, and it kind of grabbed my attention. Yeah, I agree with you. I saw it years after it came out, but I agree with you. It was well done. I'm not sure if it was well done enough for a sequel, but okay, that's it. Here, just getting off the science fiction subject, you know what I'd love to see them bring back? I don't even think it needs to be a sequel. I think it just can be a continuation of the series from when it got canceled. The animated series, The Critic with um, John Lovitz. You know, John Lovitz would always say, It stinks. That was a fun show, and I think I'd love to see John Lovitz as critic Jay Sherman uh, criticizing all these things in the era of of now where film critics are almost obsolete, with apologies to my friend Jeffrey Lyons, who I know listens regularly. 800-848-WABC, what would you like to see them bring back? Ed in New Jersey. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. It's Ed the Milkman. I think they should bring back the Uncle Floyd show because it was so witty and, you know, could fit any any uh, time, you know. Well, would you like to see them bring that back as a sequel or a remake? Um, either way. 
probably a sequel would be better because, you know, he was always good with uh, things that were, were current events, basically. And would you have Floyd Vivino still play himself or get a new performer to play Uncle Floyd? <laughs> I don't know if anybody could play him. That's true. You know, That's true. That That's true. All right, Uncle Floyd. Um, so I got my three time tracks. They came from outer space. The critic got Uncle Floyd. You got the time machine. Henry in Manhattan. What about you? Hi. Uh, I'd like to see much earlier pictures and uh, TV shows and uh, uh, about uh, kids and their uh, love for an animal, whether it's uh, my friend Flicka, which was about a horse, or Lassie, or the one about the dolphin. Flipper, that's what it's Yeah, th- but see, there were re- there were remakes about, of both Lassie and Flipper fairly recently. I don't know that they've done a remake of My Friend Flicka. That could probably do well. I would think that would do well. Uh, so My Friend Flicka, we'll put it on the list. John in Yonkers, what about you? Hi, Frank. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Um, without a doubt, definitely, with somebody out there, please bring back Miami Vice. I thought they just brought that back. I don't know. I don't hear it coming back. You know, if but here's the premise: um, the the unit's been defunct for many years, but they decided to bring the unit back again into the uh, Miami Dade uh, Police Department, and it would be head by uh, it would be uh, headed out by a female Latina woman. Someone like Jennifer Lopez. Okay, that's not bad. Have... That's, I like it. Uh, that's a clever premise. They brought it back as a film about 15 years ago. It was a movie, yes. Yeah. But it didn't do that good, though, the movie. Yeah, which means they probably won't bring it back as a TV show, although I like your your premise with Jennifer Lopez. That's interesting. 800-848-9222 if you want to make your contribution. Here's another one of mine. So, uh, And I think it only works if you get William Shatner and James Spader to reprise their roles, Boston Legal, wouldn't that be great? Not a reimagining, but a sequel. Now, Shatner's 90 now, so I don't know if he'd be up for the rigors of an episodic TV show, but maybe. You know, Mr. F- uh, you know William Daniels reprised his role as Mr. J- Mr. Feeney for the sequel to Boy Meets World called Girl Meets World. And I, I interviewed uh, William Daniels recently. He still sounds sharp. It'd be great to see him reprise that role one more one more time. Got Brian Kilmeade coming up. We've got the $1,000 Minute coming up. But I'd love to know what sequels or remakes you'd actually like to see them bring back. Mike in Pennsylvania, what do you have for us? Uh, different strokes. I would be, I'd bring back, but in a different way. What would it be would the, the uh, Mr. Drummond has two kids, and Mr. Drummond dies. And the chauffeur takes the kids because they find out Mr. Drummond was a millionaire because he had a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> like, you know. So now the kids got to go to the hood and live with, live with the chauffeur. The chauffeur takes them in. And I think it would be, you know, these two little white rich kids going to the hood. Mike, that's actually, that be, that's know. very funny, Mike. I, I really like that, actually. Peter in Pennsylvania, what do you have for us? Hey, uh, so parenthetically, be, be, before I get to the show, when you mentioned Joe Franklin before, uh, I, I was a guest on Joe's show once, and prior to that, Joe wanted me to come up and chat 
at his office, which I think was on 42nd Street. 43rd, yes. What an experience that was. Have you, were you ever in Joe's office? M- many times. I answered the phone there uh, every day uh, during the summer when I was 16. Uh, oh, my God. Wasn't that? I mean, that, that was an experience. I mean, talk about a pack rat, right? That's for sure. That is for sure. A once in a lifetime. If you uh, if you um, go to the YouTube and you Google some or YouTube some of my interviews with Joe, we have some of the photos from me and him in his office in there. You could see it was an experience. That's for sure. That that, that was anyway the, the the show that I loved and I've only caught it uh, occasionally in in repeat here and there is that uh, 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 Mystery Science Theater two thousand. Three thousand. That was so. Three thousand. Three thousand. Yeah. Three thousand. That that is uh, well, a. Good, maybe they can, you know they actually yeah. did bring that back as a film. I don't understand why they discontinued that as a show because it couldn't have been that expensive a show to produce because basically the movie that and if people aren't familiar with the show it was a great show where basically you'd have um, two robots and a human critiquing a a TV pro a, a, a an, like a cheesy movie. Like uh, the man with two brains or something, or a really cheesy B-level movie from the fifties or sixties, usually, and they'd wi- make wisecracks through the whole film. It was great. Um, it was, but I don't know why they discontinued that because it was very popular. They made a movie about it, and then for some reason they didn't bring it back. I don't know why. Eight hundred eight four eight WMC. This is the last one that I'll mention, and then we'll get a couple more from you, and then we got Brian Kilmeade waiting in the wings. The Nightmare Cafe with Robert Unglund. Robert Unglund, this was like an anthology series, kind of like The Twilight Zone. I barely remember this. I think it only had six episodes, but it was so cool. I love the cafe aspect. I love Robert Unglund. I love that it was an anthology series. It was on NBC. I'd love to see them bring that back. 800-848-WABC. Joe on Staten Island. Hello. Yeah, hi, Frank. I'd like to see them bring back the old show soap opera it was a gothic soap opera dark shadows now they brought it back a couple of times as a movie they bombed badly i think one of them even had johnny depp in it right but so i'd like to see them bring it back as a sequel not a not a remake because they can't remake that original in fact i'm re-watching the entire original series but as a sequel i'd like to see them bring it back yeah my mom was a big fan of that series she really liked that show i think well I, again they keep trying with that and it never seems to work mike in new jersey Good morning, Frank. Frank, I'd like I sent you an email, but I'd like to see him uh redo Seinfeld, only the characters would be young. Uh high school age maybe oh, or even younger. That's interesting. Um, George would be um there because he met him in high school, and then a female uh character, which could be an Elaine type, and then a kooky kid like uh Kramer. That's pretty clever, Mike. I actually think that could do really well. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. I think that's pretty good. Pablo in Brooklyn, hello. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? Uh, look, uh, 2010, they have to remake that movie. It was horrible. <laughs> well, that itself re- was a sequel. Remake, uh, not a sequel, but reimagine that movie more in line with the book. Okay, all right. I can understand that. Look, Galactica 1980 was not a great sequel to Battlestar Galactica, but uh, they ended up doing a very good remake of Battlestar Galactica and ignoring Battlestar Galactica 1980. So maybe maybe that uh, 2010, which was the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, maybe they could do the same thing there. Hey, um, those of you that are on hold, if you want to continue to hold, we'll get to you. We're going to do the $1,000 Minute next, and then we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade is uh, heard every day from 10 a.m. to noon, 
Uh, but if you want to be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-WABC, if you are the seventh caller, I should say, then we're going to give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do it, you'll win $1,000. So go ahead and call right now. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina, Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina, Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina, Mr. Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina, 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 Mr. Doublelina, Mr. Bob Doublelina. In what is probably the catchiest song of all time, Mr. Dabalina. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to talk to uh, Brian Kilmeade in just a moment. But first, we want to give one lucky person an opportunity to win $1,000. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host... Frank uh, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Ray in New Jersey. Hello there, Ray. How you doing, Frank? Ray, you know the rules, right? Yes, yes. Okay, the timer yes. will start after we ask you the first question. You get a question right, we're just moving on to the next one so we can get to all 10 of these in 60 seconds and make you $1,000 richer. You ready to go? Yes, I'm ready. How many letters are in the word name? Four. What is the first name of Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh? Brett. What was the name of Lucy's husband on I Love Lucy? Ricky Ricardo. Which hotel had a break-in in 1972 which led to the resignation of a president? Watergate. What month is Flag Day? What month is Flag Day? June. What state did my brother get married in over the weekend? Hawaii. Gulliver's Travels was written by which Anglo-Irish writer? Gulliver's Travel was written by Sullivan. Ah! No, you were doing really well. You were on a good pace, too. Jonathan Swift. Jonathan Swift, Ray. Uh, well, you earned yourself some uh, a, a new uh, The Other Side of Midnight shirt. Ray, hang on. Give your information to Avery, and we're going to send you something nice. If you want to get a shirt for yourself, you can go to WABCRadioStore.com. There's a ton of great merchandise there. Meantime, many of you might have seen the movie Multiplicity, which is about Michael Keaton being cloned so that he can work. And then he can have leisure time, and then he could do housework, and then he can look after the kids and be a good husband. You may not know that. No, you may not know this, but that film, Multiplicity, was actually based on the cloning of Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade actually has five clones because that is the only way you can explain the prodigious schedule that this man is keeping up on a daily basis. He's on radio three hours a day. He's on television three hours a day. He is uh, being a guest on other radio and TV shows. He's filling in on other TV shows. He somehow is finding the time to write books. I think he coaches Little League, and then he does and speaks live at live events. 
the guy has a schedule which no one in the world can understand, which leads me to think that there's something fishy going on here. As, as evidence of that, he's agreed to join us at 4.30 this morning. Brian, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Well, first off, I can't win $1,000. I was all excited. <laughs> I, I did not know that last answer either, uh, by the way. Uh, but, Frank, thanks. Uh, multiplicity was underappreciated, as is Michael Keaton overall. Uh, I will add one thing. Saturday nights at 8 and 11, I got a show called One Nation, uh, which is I, it's doing really well, and I hope everyone uh, watches. I, I, I'm sorry for omitting that, yeah. of course. Right. You, you're on the air more hours than I'm awake in a given week, Brian. So forgive <laughs> uh, But honestly, well, do you ever sleep? Uh, how do you manage this schedule, Brian? Because I feel like it's a big accomplishment if I can manage to read a book, yet you're out there writing them. Well, I got two years. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. It's not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, this Patterson guy pumping out a book all the time, and I'm certainly don't have that talent. But I'm just uh, so I, I take really six, seven months uh, to come up with an idea, and then it takes six, seven months to start researching. You frame it out, and then once you start, you I got it done. Got to get it done by 2023. So um, I'm off. I'm off and running now. But you just try to you just try to plan it out. And what I did is I wiped out hobbies. You will not see me on the 17th hole on any golf course. <laughs> you will not see me Sunday morning playing tennis. I mean, I work out uh, a lot, but I'm, I'm not doing things that uh, I, I don't. And maybe it's it's my lack of rounding out my life. I just don't have a lot of recreation time because I love doing this. Yeah, I, like, I, I mean, I, we have the best jobs. Oh, you get no argument from me. So you're not you're not watching like the latest episode of Ozark or anything. Yeah, I mean, I hear that's a good series, but I'm not unless one of the actors is going to be on one of our shows. Mm. I'm probably not watching Ozark, but I, I did. Um, I'm trying to think the series. I'm, I'm watch, I watch uh, Showtime. I watch the Lakers story, which if I'm Jerry West, I'm suing everybody. <laughs> I was able to uh, everybody twice, but um, you know, I watch that series, and I think that's pretty much it. I am in awe of the schedule that you keep, genuinely, and uh, and doing it all so, so well, which is impressive. Brian, a couple of issues in the news I want to pick your brain. First, uh, let's look at the election results this week. Obviously, the story that you were covering a great deal yesterday and has gotten a lot of attention nationally is what happened in San Francisco. San Francisco, one of the most progressive cities in the country, has recalled the soft-on-crime DA that they have there, Kessa Bodine, it looks like there's a similar movement that's about to take hold in Los Angeles to recall their uh, soft-on-crime DA. Might be happening in some other cities around the country. In L.A., the candidate that finished first in the mayor's race, a former Republican, former independent, sits on the board of the Ronald Reagan Foundation, ran on a platform on cracking down on homelessness and cracking down on crime. L.A., a very liberal city. Here in New York, which is a very liberal city, we can debate about what Eric Adams has actually done, but there's no debate on what his messaging was during the campaign. He ran a tough-on-crime message in the campaign. Are we seeing a new era in Democratic cities, Brian, where Democrats are willing to embrace a tough-on-crime message? Is that the new winning message in Democratic primaries? I I don't think anybody... Any independent, certainly any Republican, and most Democrats can't seriously think that they are tough on crime. They are solely responsible for the riots over the last three years in the streets, for the decrease in almost every budget, 
for the lack of uh, for the constant criticism on the men and women in blue. Uh, and those who uh, wear the badge, they are t- tangentially uh, responsible for the mass retirements and the and the low attendance at academies, except for places like Long Island. Uh, and in New York City, they're having a lot of trouble getting quality candidates, and they cut a billion dollars out of the budget. For Joe Biden to say, you know, I gave all that money to the states, I urge you to put it to cops. For him to say, now scramble with a tough-on-crime message, Frank, there's no way they're going to sell it. Because there's one thing about the average police officer. They're street smart. They know who had their backs. They know who was not calling to decrease their budget. I saw in this poll today, now 52% of New Yorkers say they want an increase in the NYPD budget because 7 Mm. in 10 feel they'll be a victim of crime. And what we saw in San Francisco, I just think, and you probably heard the show or portions of the show yesterday, I think it's such a big deal because for San Francisco to tell this guy to hit the road and throw him out in two and a half years, that's as liberal as it gets. Los Angeles is next. We had Lee Zeldin on yesterday, and he's got a legitimate shot at um, at, at winning this, uh, winning the, uh, the governor's mansion. And, you know, Rob Astruno's a good candidate, and Andrew Giuliani's got some positives, but no one's got the positives that Lee Zeldin has. And he says there's something in the New York uh, Constitution that says you can actually fire the attorney general who was elected. So you can't recall Alvin Bragg, but you can fire him, and he says he will. I'm going to ask you about the governor's race again in just a second, but just to follow up there, what does it say to you, though, that voters in Democratic voters in New York, L.A., and San Francisco, and uh, I imagine we're going to see this play out in some other heavily Democratic cities around the country, uh, they're embracing a tougher on crime approach than what we've seen previously. I mean, three years ago, they elected this fellow Kessa Boudin on a not prosecute anybody platform. And now those same voters in San Francisco have thrown it out. It, does that give you any sense of optimism about yes. where Democratic voters are? Well, I, I think Democratic voters have to demand candidates. They care about the country first. And I think it goes back to the 1619 project. First off, People were getting into our school systems. Uh, teachers were being forced to teach that America sucks and that we're, uh, we're based on slavery on stolen land. And then they go in and they say, you know, your streets, those people who are enforcing the law of the land, they're evil. So uh, treat them like hell. Ignore them. When they go to arrest you, run from them. And if they do anything, we got it on camera, and we will just uh, uh, we will uh, stain every person that wears the blue if some uh, police officer uh, goes over the line. So now after doing all that, Americans have stood up. And they said, we're not going to be duped by this. We want our streets back. We want our country back. And I kind of like this place. And Chesa Bodine was such a big deal. What happened in Virginia was such a big deal as it flipped to Republican. And the average mom and dad is standing up and demanding the curriculum change in their schools. These, these are things that the David Axelrod can't come up with, that Karl Rove can't devise. These aren't strategies that are done by politicians or pollsters. These are the American people saying, uh, enough with the games. I'm getting my life back. I'm watching my back, the back of my family, uh, and I'm going to get my job back. I'm going to have a quality of life, and you are not going to tell me this country's bad and our streets are safe because neither is true.
We're talking with Brian Kilmeade. You could hear him this morning at uh, 10 a.m. right here on WABC doing great. Uh, you'll hear guests on that show that you hear nowhere else uh, doing very well in the ratings and obviously just killing it on uh, Fox News, uh, not only on Fox and Friends, but uh, on the weekend as well. Brian, not that you are in charge of Fox News, uh, but you are, for a lot of people, the, the face of Fox News. You're the fellow that a lot of folks start their morning with on Fox News every day. Fox News is the only one of the cable news networks, the major cable news networks, that's deciding not to air the January 6th commission hearings tonight. What do you think of these January 6th commission hearings in general? And uh, can you explain to folks why Fox is making that decision? Uh, No. Uh, I will tell you what the decision is, though. I mean, I'm not in on the decision. Um, you know, um, then it's changed a few times. I know that I'm on Gutfeld tonight, so I'm going to be taping Gutfeld, and it's going to air on Friday. So that's how I knew uh, what we were doing on Thursday. Mm. So it's 8 o'clock tonight. Uh, and the Fox Business Network, the fast-growing network in the country, which is in this building next door to me as the vice president of Fox Business, you'll see me on Cudlow tonight, too, at 4. Uh, you know, there's no difference. I mean, one is uh, like Fox, nothing's like Fox News, but Fox Business is big, carrying it live. At the same time, our primetime lineup is the best in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're beating networks. So why would we tell Tucker to take the night off? How did he take the night off? Uh, this is my opinion. I have not talked to management. You've just asked me, Brian, kill me to pay. Sure, got it. Uh, but why have you asked me to, to those three fantastic hosts with some great loyal audiences to take the night off? They'll dip in and out of it. And at 11 o'clock, we're going to go full-blown recap everybody what's happened. With every network's covering it. And in my opinion, only my opinion, when you were bringing it, when I found out that bringing in the ABC News producer to make sure the biggest names, the biggest guests, and the most exciting news is up front, and when you really care about getting to the bottom of things, but most of all you care about ratings and people to see it, it to me, just Brian Kilmeade's opinion, it becomes a pure political ploy. Unlike the impeachment, which was just on any time everywhere, Frank, you must have been getting up at like two because you work all night. <laughs> they go, okay, this thing's on again. They're in the house. You know, it was nonstop. But here, this is one side. I mean, Adam Kinzinger, who I, I was friendly with, and Liz Cheney, who was on all the time, I thought they were going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed against Trump. I get it. But what you did here by not calling out the National Guard is wrong. Uh, it is true that Donald Trump wanted to be there. The, the Secret Service stopped him from being there. It is also true that he said repeatedly, well, I'll march down there uh, peacefully and patriotically. I thought at least they would push back. And the times in which they just their Trump hate were to overwhelm them, and I am totally against the January 6th rally. I'm totally against what happened after. I'm horrified by it. But to just say this to me has morphed into we have to make sure Donald Trump doesn't run again. Mm. They can't believe that his numbers are higher than Joe Biden's again. They impeached him as he was walking out the door. He didn't go to the inauguration, and they, they are still trying to investigate him nonstop. And still his numbers are going up. And they said, how do I stop them? This is the way to stop talking about inflation, gas prices, Afghanistan, uh, the countless uh, dollars going to uh, Ukraine without any clear strategy, although I'm thoroughly in support of that. Uh, All his uh, uh, bungling of this America's conference in California, Uh, the illegal immigrants 32 miles long storming our southern border. Let's bring up Donald Trump again. 
Brian Kilmeade just speaking off the top of my head, him to have this job now for 26 years. I think they're looking around and they say, this is newsworthy. I do want to find out what top, what this is about. But I'm not going to sit here and be a DNC promo. In terms of Trump, one of the things that I think even a lot of supporters of, of Donald Trump have uh, sort of rolled their eyes at at times is his emphasis on relitigating the outcome of the 2020 election, uh, calling into doubt the outcome in states like Georgia and Pennsylvania and Arizona. And I, I know you've said publicly that it's a mistake for Trump to focus on that rather than focus on criticizing President Biden's policies. Do you get the sense that President Trump is starting to de-emphasize those claims of election fraud at all? No. Uh, I mean, I hear uh, I heard a report uh, from somebody who was just there. They said, basically, he does not want to see you if you think he didn't win the election. Wow. So that's just it. I, I know the people that are his biggest fans. And it's like this. Frank, you could be the biggest fan of, uh, you know, of, um, of the Giants. And look at the last 10 years, and you can't say they made the right decision with coaches in the draft. Mm-hmm. You could sit there, why did you draft this? But it doesn't mean you stop being supportive of them. But if Donald Trump, he's got that 40% base. Everybody that's at 40% knows for him to win, it's got to get to 44 and 46. For him to do that, he's got to attract independents and moderates and undecideds. Not the Trump base. He's got to go beyond the base. He's got to go beyond it. And if he continues to bring up 2020, he will not, especially when inflation, gas prices, the, the strength of the economy, 11 million unfilled jobs, the embarrassment of our foreign policy, the ineptness of our president is what concerns us most. Nobody cares about 2020. Their legal team proved almost nothing. So in that case, you move on. Nixon had a great case against Kennedy. You mm. moved on. Gore felt like he, if they counted the whole state, he would have won. But he moved on because it's better for the country to move on. Now Joe Biden is coming on the midterm elections, and he's going to get thumped in a way if there's any justice in the world we've never seen before. He's already plowing the ground saying, I don't know about these new election rules. I don't know if we can trust the election. Now Republicans can't come back and say, how dare you de-emphasize the election? Yeah, and that it really is a shame because it's 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 sparing the country from a really important policy debate on all the issues you just mentioned and the issue we began the discussion with the crime issue, which is paramount on a lot of those of us that live in places like New York. You alluded to the governor's race. Uh, Lee Zeldin, you had a terrific interview with him yesterday. It looks like he and Andrew Giuliani are sort of neck and neck at the top of most polls in the governor's race. A lot of speculation about who President Trump would endorse in that race, if anybody. Clearly, he's got a long association with the Giuliani's, but uh, had a very good working relationship with Lee Zeldin. And I'm wondering, as somebody that has followed the race fairly closely and that knows the mindset of President Trump better than I think most do, what do you think he'll end up doing there? Do you think he'll endorse Zeldin, Giuliani, or stay out of it? Well, you know, he's known Andrew Giuliani his whole life. Andrew did a great job in the White House by almost all reports. Every time I meet him, the guy's upbeat. I just don't think he has any experience. And I don't think you jump to the governor's race from handling sports in the White House. Number two, um, uh, number two is Rob Astorino, unbelievably talented, conversational, great broadcaster and communicator. But he's tried twice, and he's gotten nowhere. 
Lee Zeldin's a military guy. He's a Jewish American who's one in a purple area who understands national security as well as knows that in this state you can't run it like it's bright red. You have to run it and understand that the New York City has needs in upstate New York matters, and Long Island certainly matters. I think if you look at the climate, the disaster that Cuomo is, the uh, the overwhelmed Governor Hochul, this is an opportunity for the right candidate. I believe that Lee Zeldin seems to have all the attributes of the person that could get on the governor's mansion for the first time since Governor Pataki. Mm. Uh, well, it's certainly going to be very interesting. Before we let you go, Brian, and I know you have a marathon day of 9, 10, 11 hours of broadcasting today. I don't know. Uh, I've lost track. I get dizzy listening to your schedule today. Um, President Biden was on with Jimmy Kimmel yesterday. And uh, you uh, before you were on Fox News, people may not know this, you did a little comedy. Curious what you think of Joe Biden's humor. This is a little bit of what he was doing on Jimmy Kimmel last night. Maybe there's a uh, a Death Star pumping false information into our Fox, right? Or, yeah. Uh, He said Fox is a death star of misinformation. Any thoughts on how the president did either comedically or on the substance of his appearance yesterday? So what I was doing is I was reading the transcripts, and I'll have some of that today. This is what I found unbelievably unacceptable that he just said. Uh, with Fox, I'm, I'm used to it. It's hysterical, right? Uh, it's the number one network. You combine all the networks together. It's not a right-wing network. If you see some of the hate mail that we get from uh, Donald Trump fans and further on the right, it's unbelievable. Uh, but what it is is we're pro-American, my opinion. What he said last night, he said, when asked about Roe v. Wade, in fact, the decision comes down the way it does, and these states impose the limitations they're taking, talking about there's going to be a mini-revolution. Really? The President of the United States is predicting a mini-revolution in the country that he runs? That's responsible? That's, hist- that's not comedy. That's idiocy. That's why we have people uh, – in- there's people in his own communications division spend all day walking back his ridiculous comments. He is called- – now, today, any good reporter would say – is the president calling for a mini-revolution if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Because there was an assassin that showed up at Kavanaugh's mm. house last night. And is this going to lower the rhetoric? How much more experience does the 78-year-old need to know how to be a politician? Uh, Brian, finally, can you give us a quick preview of what's coming up on Fox & Friends on TV and what's coming up uh, on WABC when you take the reins at 10 a.m. after Bernie and Sid? Uh and, and, and reluctantly, because they would like to go all day, gotcha. uh, as you do uh, go all night. Um, here is uh, here is my uh, roster of guests uh, for today. We're going to have uh, Jason Chaffetz on what's going on with gun legislation. Carly Shimkus, who everybody there knows, was on with IMAS for years on WABC. Uh, Mark Thiessen was talking about the the chances with these gun laws getting passed and, and with some of the testimony that happened yesterday, as well as what's going on with inflation. Senator Daines took on uh, Secretary of Treasury uh, Yellen. So he said, I told you that inflation would rise if you passed the $1.9 trillion. How could you just sit here and pretend to apologize? And John Yu, uh, he's the Berkeley professor who worked in the Bush White House, and he's a legal uh, 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 constitutional scholar on what just happened on the West Coast. We just discussed, Frank, uh, and uh, what it could mean for the uh, around the country when it comes to law and order. And Sandra Smith will be joining us. I'll just talk about the would-be uh, more violence that could happen outside Supreme Court Justice's house. I'm going to talk about the Americans care about. 
uh, most foremost uh, by double anything else. It is inflation and gas prices. Yet the president keeps telling us the deficit's going down. Brian, so, it, it is always a treat. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Talkers on Friday. And uh, on how you're going to squeeze that into your schedule, <laughs> I'll never know. But I'll see you then. Go get him, Frank. Uh, 15 Thank seconds you. of fame next. Uh, catch Brian on Fox and Friends and on uh, WABC starting at 10 a.m. 800-848-9222. Keep burning and sit on while you're watching Fox and Friends. 800-848-WABC. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. WABC. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. fame. Joni in New Jersey or Joanne. I hear that winds blow all across the Wicklow Mountains. Is it you? I hear a calling. Johnny boy, oh Johnny boy. Tommy on Staten Island. I think it's outrageous that you can't have a gun at 18. I was in the Army at 18, and I was in Grenada, and guess what? I carried an AR-15 with a 30-round clip. And finally, Cheech in Howard Beach. Anthony, you still didn't say you're sorry. How you doing? 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 Dead Valentine in the early news. Straight ahead, Frank Moreno. Good day.